I love you. Don't you understand? I don't want to be loved. But Johnny. But Johnny. But Johnny. I love you. I love you. I love you. You love She. Everybody loves everybody. Well, I don't see. I love nobody. Don't even love Johnny. I will not be pushed, filed, stamped, indexed, briefed, debriefed, or numbered. My life is my own. They're frequently dumb, but they're sometimes astute. They're always emphatic on a degree absolute. They're breaking the prisoner right down to the root. That whole TV show on a degree absolute. If you like lava lamps and weather balloons, and whack ass inflections from Patrick McGoon, Chris and Glenn made a podcast. It's a degree absolute. absolute. Glenn. Chris. Do you agree with the McElroy brothers that the content of podcasting is pure libido symbolism? Oh, that doesn't sound like them, but uh, I, I guess I want to see where you're going with this before I agree or disagree. That's all of it. That's okay. uh, I'm appropriating something that Cass, not Mike, not in Mike, all night long, but Cass asks of the sleazy promoter, Booker agent guy, whom Johnny Cousin is is trying to impress. What was that guy's name? Mr. Burger. Mr. Burger. Lou. Right? Lou Berger. Yes, yes, Lou Berger. Looks a little like Tom Wilkinson and a little like Mike Nichols. There's some Sydney Green Street in there as well. It's a, a hybrid of all the greats. Well, this episode is late, but given the subject of our inquiry this evening, all night long, this is no time for strict tempos, Glenn. <laughs> we like to play around the beat. You know what I'm saying? It's, it's about the, the notes you don't play. It's about the podcast you can't listen to. That's right, Daddy-O. Without a little syncopation in our release schedule, it would just be a big nowhere scene. Uh Uh, Uh-huh. Right on. I think, no, wait a minute. Right on is later. Uh, I'll just snap No, that's that's later and a lot less white. It's cool, man. It's cool, man. (laughs) You dig? Well, you've already started to hear a little little snippet there of uh, a a golden voice. Mm Mm-hmm. One whom listeners have been hearing on nearly every episode of this show. Uh, well, on, on every episode of the show for more than a year now. Um, today we have the benefit of her insight along with her musical skills and her magnificent pipes. She is, as she likes to say, a recovering musical theater actor, a voice and communications coach, and the co-founder with her business partner, Julie Fogg, of Vital Voice Training, which, like you, Glenn, mm-hmm. just celebrated a birthday. Her least impressive credential is that she is the singer of our silly little theme song. Please welcome the lovely Ms. Casey Aaron Clark. <laughs> Who just couldn't shut up until she was introduced, which is very on brand for me, Chris. Yeah, that's, that's what we like. So glad you're here. Thank you so much, Casey. I'm delighted to be here and delighted to be introduced to this movie. Yeah, right. We got you a good one this time. <laughs> I even signed up for the Criterion Collection to oh, get it. Oh, that's going to pay big dividends. <laughs> well, okay. So I have now driven to 
memberships uh-huh. to the Criterion channel, which, by the way, like I never they, they sent whenever they, they started two or three years ago, a bunch of film Twitter was uh, tweeting photos of their founding member cards. I never got that. No. I never got the card. Lame. I get the the coupon for 10% off in the store every anniversary, but I don't have my card. Mm. They might not be doing that anymore. You know, supply chain. Just just, always blame supply chain. I was a charter member, Glenn, I think. You could make yourself one. Totally could. <laughs> Laminate it, stick it in your wallet. You're the you're the crafty one. You're the, <laughs> the person with those those kinds of, of skills. Uh, no, I mean I, I I just feel overlooked. I feel neglected. I I feel like um, I feel like Johnny Cousin. I feel like I I haven't gotten my due. Well, we'll get into it, but this is a really interesting McGowan performance. It's kind of vibes with a lot of his other stuff, but it is he is more sort of uh, grasping and helpless and flailing than. We see him before. Yeah. So it's a, it's also real American. Real American. Yes, he's doing. <laughs> he's giving us the Liam Neeson R's. Yeah, right. American. I'm part of that new minority group, white American jazz musicians. Oh We're gonna have God. our grand meeting yeah. in a phone booth. <laughs> yeah. Everyone's reaction to that line was priceless. <laughs> Especially all of the white jazz musicians that were hired for the picture. Absolutely. These are all real jazz. I, I mean, of course, there's, there's, there's Mingus, there's uh, Brubeck. I was not familiar with Johnny Dankworth mm-hmm. prior to watching this film. Dankworth sounds like a pot delivery concern that should be sponsoring this podcast. I was say, and there's plenty of jazz cigarettes in the movie, too. That's true. Mm. <laughs> But no, this this was a real a real eye opener. So we by by bringing in a musical theater performer, a torch singer like you, Casey. I feel like we are, are making up for our deficiencies on the musical side of this film. This is a, a ninety-one minute film that pauses several times for just like full length numbers. Yeah, they're just they're not advancing the plot or anything. These aren't like Sondheim numbers. These no. are uh, and only one of them is vocal. There's there's the song. All oh, night two, long. two of that because we get two Delia numbers. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah. two Delia numbers. But there's at least one. I, you know what I couldn't find was uh, the titles of of some of the instrumental selections that we hear. But like there's the like twenty minutes in, we just stop for this like Brubeck led instrumental that goes on for <laughs> three or four minutes, where he fully. Um, Breaks the fourth wall and looks at the camera, which stares was, down the barrel. I mean, of the camera. it was yes. amazing. And I, what I want to know is, did they ask him to do that? Did he do that? And his take was so good that they were like, "Fine, we'll keep it." Like, what? How? How did the director feel about that breaking the fourth wall moment? Oh, I want to know. Man. And. Brubeck here, I, I, you know, I listened to a lot of Brubeck. I've never actually seen him, and he is serving you some real Rick Moranis in Honey, I Shrunk the Kids vibes. <gasps> oh. I was going to say it was an astonishing Eugene Levy performance as Dave Brubeck. Mm. But, oh. Uh, I see them both. I see them both. Some, it's SCTV adjacent, <laughs> no matter what it is. <laughs> I love the aesthetic of this movie, this time, this, mm. not, not quite so much the place, but the time. I grew up watching reruns of Leave it to Beaver. Uh, and just longing for everything to be that clean and crisp and stark. And uh, Leave it to Beaver ran several seasons just long enough for you to start to see the older brother's, Tony Dow's um, sideburns creeping a little further Ooh. down his face, his hair getting half an inch longer. And what I love about this movie is that these people 
are the rebels, right? They're the iconoclasts. The this mm. this is the this is what the counterculture looks like in these starched <laughs> white shirts and skinny ties and sports jackets and hair that has been teased and aquanetted for days in the case of the women. These this, people This is it's a company of 27-year-olds who all look 49. Mm-hmm. Oh. <laughs> when he have... says I'm 35 years old, I was like, are you though? Yeah, right. <laughs> but it's so funny because these people have no idea what's coming just like three or four years down the pike. They have no idea. And it just, it looks so uh, parenty. <laughs> they look like <laughs> your parents. It's, it's, uh, it's, it's fascinating to me. I just, I just love the look of this. Well, why are we, why are we talking about this? All night long, this uh, 1961 Basil Dearden joint that transplants the tragedy Othello to the London 60s jazz scene. What are we doing here? Why are we discussing this this place? I assume you're about to tell us. Well, the thing is, Glenn, mm-hmm. was that in 1966, Patrick McGowan, star of the long-running TV spy series Danger Man, resigned at the height of that show's popularity to create a new series about a spy who resigns from government service and wakes up in a mysterious, inescapable village where each resident is referred to, eh, you know, most residents, mm. not all residents. Certainly, there, there are some residents who uh, buck the system and get called the professor or something, but most of them are purely numerical. Surreal and provocative, silly and pretentious, ahead of its time, and innately and unambiguously and lava lampedly of its time, that short-lived, long-tailed series was called The Prisoner. Yeah, it was. But before that, previously on, before even Danger Man, I think, or, you know, concurrent with, like, that initial iteration of Danger Man, before they they canceled it and, and brought it back, our boy Patty McGee earned top billing Mm-hmm. As as he would a decade later in the Moonshine War, the other movie where we get to see him play American mm-hmm. and Squirrely, American and Squirrely, but like he is playing here. Yes, mm-hmm. <laughs> this is a, right. It, it's it's uh, unfortunate that we did the Moonshine War first, but doesn't matter. Doesn't matter. This is a a, a an archetype. I think that McGowan is is pretty good at mm-hmm. a shady guy, a, a guy <clears throat> who uh, has a has a dastardly plan that he doesn't quite have the the skills to to carry out but he's doing a lot of a lot of tradecraft in this isn't he Glenn he's um gaslighting people he's surreptitiously recording people he is um cutting tape Mm-hmm. It's the 1960 version of uh, editing a podcast where you punch up your jokes evil podcast editing evil podcast editing exactly yeah he's yeah. he could be uh he could be a really cool jazz bond Right. And I, you know, I don't know if I've ever really found a a source that convinces me that it's true that he was offered and and turned down that role. Tough to see. Tough to see. Mm -hmm. Um, And certainly the the way that he he relates to his his poor wife, Emily, in this film is is very much (laughs) of a beast. Justice for Emily. Oh, my God. I have thoughts. You know, at least he he doesn't murder her in this version. There's no but physical abuse. No, no, that's great. <laughs> yeah. Which this this no. mar- this film is not really a sterling advertisement for the institution of marriage. Yeah, that's true. Because the physical abuse uh, is done to an entirely different woman <laughs> yep. of the three yep. in the script. An entirely yeah. different woman who, by the way, though, uh, remains unmurdered at the end of this place. That's just, just you know, those studio notes <laughs> softening the ending. Who do they think they are? They're rewriting Shakespeare. <laughs> All right. Well, we're uh, getting ahead of ourselves here. We need to welcome our, our listeners 
into this discussion. Glenn, I, I hope you're ready. You ready to do your part? I'm ready. Okay. I don't think Casey needs to be instructed into the the metric system. The sweaty, <laughs> all, the sweaty metric system. Yeah, no, I think she's nodding. I think she's, she's familiar. Casey, I know you, you're you an avid Wordler. I, I am. I play well, lots you, of Wordle. You've advanced games. far beyond Wordle now, right? Oh, I... Octortal, yeah, it's bad. I have an addiction. Okay, well, this is the opposite of Wordle, right? Six is good. One is one is bad. <laughs> on our on our scale, six bad, one good. Mm, nope, nope. Six good, one bad. Six good, one bad. Right. That's what I said. Yeah, no, you said six bad, one good. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's on tape. I won't yep. doctor it like I'm. Yep, yep, yep. No, I'm gonna. <laughs> we're gonna run it back. I'm gonna take a little piece of chalk. Mm-hmm. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, non-binary individuals, to the private, personal, by hand, punch card-driven podcast, where we take this unforgettable and unclassifiable TV series, The Prisoner, and related items, and we push it over a balcony like it's a hophead <laughs> saxophonist <laughs> who's not having an affair with our wife. Uh, I'll, I will give that a, a solid five for, re, you know, subject matter relatability. That's what I'm going for. I hate this, Glenn. I got to give you a six. I appreciate that. So what's missing? Appreciate it's that, It's a six. Friend. We also file it like it's an appeal to the British Board of Film Censors, questioning their classification of A, meaning that the film in question is suitable most suitable for adults. <laughs> Definitely a six. I'm so glad that that was not omitted no. from the Criterion <laughs> channel. Most suitable. <laughs> Love it. Love it. I might even get like a 6.5 for the accent work. That was very uh, the fine. Accent work. <laughs> that uh, British Board of Film Censors certificate was issued by Julie Andrews. Uh, I'm certain of it. Okay. <laughs> It's another another six, Glenn. You're cooking with gas, buddy. All right, man. We index it like we're splicing reel-to-reel tape to falsify evidence of an affair. How about I just erase it? Huh? Huh? You know what? What good will it do? That's not bad. <laughs> I'll, I'll I'll do a five again. Yeah. Cool. Yeah, that's a five. We stamp it, or more specifically, we time stamp it, so we can seamlessly insert ourselves asking a question on the reel-to-reel tape that we are falsifying. Uh, four, because it was a little sweaty, but I liked it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> fair. Perfectly fair. I'm going to give that a five. I don't like this. I don't. This is great inflation. Yeah, but, no, sure. Um, I get it. We okay. brief it like we're an eyebrowless Johnny Cousin trying to inform Rex about his cuckoldry. Um, I'm going to go with four again. That was brief? Yeah, I was briefing him. Okay. It's brief. Briefing yep. him. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Are you briefing someone if you're trying to convince them of something that's untrue? You are passing along information. Oh, yeah. I that's pretty false information, though. Yeah, false it doesn't information. matter. False information. <laughs> See, I'm going to... I think that. I think that's... A, if you're lying to Follow someone, I don't heart, think you're briefing them. I, yeah, I'm giving you a three there, Glenn. Okay, that's a okay. three. I'm sorry. We debrief it like we're the jazz numbers in this movie that eat up a good ten minutes of screen time. They are not brief. 
five for truth telling. Yeah. Glenn, the film is not called Part of the Evening. <laughs> <laughs> Does it take place in real time? That's my question. Is Pretty it close. Very close. I right? think it, it does. very yeah. close. It does. Yeah. No, I'll give you I'll give you a five for that. But boy, this this movie does not drag, if mm-hmm. you ask me. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And finally, we number it like it's the amount of pads that Rod owns throughout the city. The number in question being four. And this one's the warehouse. This one is the warehouse. Well, no, the, yeah. I mean, it's a loft, really. Yeah. A very cushy loft. An amazing fucking loft. <laughs> uh, I would like to live there. Even wow, the this place is Spook City. That's what I thought of it. <laughs> Bargain Basement, Marilyn Monroe thought that. Yes. Okay, I'm going to give you a... Sorry, Casey, please. Uh, please <laughs> I'm going to go with a, uh, a, a six for, for specificity and detail noticing. Uh-huh. Okay, I'll, I'll give you a, a five for this one. Spook City, baby. Spook City, baby. It came out of that pretty unscathed. I'm proud of that. Good. Thank you, guys. Really, really good work. Well, you know, as we as we always do, eventually, we're going to talk Magoons. We're going to talk MacGuffins. Our inquiry into this televisionary landmark and related documents is not of a degree mainstream. No, it ain't. It's not of a degree polytonal. No. uh Casey, do you have... Uh... <laughs> Wait, do I have to do this too? No, I just want to make sure I'm not. Uh, I mean, I was trying to use, you know, musical No, nope, you were doing very that, well. Oh, I see what you're, you're doing. doing. I think I was just looking for a little more than you're approving not. I was looking for some some audible <laughs> sign of I, a, I was into it. Sorry. I wasn't giving yeah. you face. I'll give you face. It's not of a degree quartal. Oh, hey. <laughs> Shots fired. No, no, it is. Because isn't. There, are, <laughs> there are three of us. So how, how could it be? Uh-huh. What is it, Glenn? It's of a degree absolute, Chris. On balance, I agree. Yeah, so so this is uh, one of the, the films that that Basil Dearden, a busy journeyman director, um, made in, uh, in 1961. Mm-hmm. Two films prior to this, he made a movie called Victim. By most accounts, the first film to use the word homosexual. Yep, I know it well. Future prisoner errs featured in this film included Nigel Stock as Fip. And you're going to like this one, Glenn. Darren Nesbitt, the blonde glasses chewer from oh, yeah. It's Your Funeral, playing a character identified as Sandy Youth. Oh, man. And he was a Sandy Youth. Was he? Was he not? I'd like to get get some sand in that youth. I don't know what that means. <laughs> but that, anyway, yes. He was an attractive young man, so I'm sure uh, he was yes. a film called Victim. It's wrong. He never eats candy. <laughs> And I've asked Candy, and she said, no, he's, he's never done it. <laughs> One of the filthier jokes we've ever had here. I like it. I like it. Uh, so, uh, Casey, the way this works is I uh, go through the plot in, some would say exhaustive, others would say mm-hmm. exhausting detail, and you just interrupt any time. You just throw in any time you want. You just throw in whatever you want to say about the thing uh, I am citing. I have notes and notes good. and this notes. Is what I want. I'm this a is, good this student, is exactly. Glenn. Exactly. So glad. Uh, so we begin with the Janus Films logo. Did either <laughs> okay. of you? <laughs> uh, the reason I called it out is I got a rush seeing that because it's been a oh, long me time too. since I've seen it, mm-hmm. and it's just it's feeding pretentious sixteen year old Glenn who is, <laughs> would go to the repertory theater like the and just and just watch you know the Seven Samurai, whatever the hell, because that they they created the art house in the United States. 
Yeah, and I don't know whether that that logo was created via animation or what, but it it flickers a little bit. It Mm -hmm. does. It's not digital, right? So it's it's great. It has it has texture. I love it. Mm We move on to the British Board of Film Censor Certification. Uh, we, we learned that they are based in Soho Square, which, uh, you know, Soho Square has always been a little dodgy and must have been even dodgier back then. But uh, so it's, it's, they must have hated having to walk to work every day because if they were film censors, <laughs> yeah. they saw some shit. Then mostly. The, mostly appropriate. Mostly appropriate. I've never seen that certificate before. I was very excited by that. No. Then we get the rank. You know what they say about British films of the early 60s. Uh, mm, They mostly come out at night. (laughs) Mostly. (laughs) See, the rank organization, which is the shirtless gong dude. I've only seen parodies of this. I've never seen the actual thing. Every movie should begin Mm -hmm. with a shirtless (laughs) man hitting a gong. This is what I wrote down. This is my first is There is a current uh, studio production company, something that has... um, a similar thing to the old Janus uh, gong, uh, but it's an archer. Oh, yeah. Um, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's in front of one of the latter, less well-received X-Men movies. Yeah, Uh, and I I think, think like Clash of the Titans and those are kind of in that sort of... But the like the recent remake of Clash of the Titans, yeah. right? Yeah. Not the not but it's the not a real Harryhausen. man. It's like an animated. It's a it computer is. animated man. Mm-hmm. I want the real thing, please. <sighs> right. I'm with you there, Casey. Then we get uh, the titles. Um, this is not going to mean much to most listeners, I think. But this is certainly the Police Squad font, and that made me happy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Patty. Lee, he's he's getting top billing, but he's not getting his own title card. He's he's sharing yeah. with a whole bunch of other names. Um, I wanted to locate and and failed to uh, the title of the piece of music that plays over these opening titles because it plays again at the end and in the middle that you know when Johnny takes to the drums for for a key scene. So we hear this piece of music three times. I'll just keep doing it. Yeah, okay. Uh, uh, keep doing it under what I'm saying. So a, we see a wealthy dude get uh, into da, his da, roles da. Um, while Dave Brubeck uh, tinkles, tickles the ivories and someone else is doing something with the, the drums. What is that, the skins? Is that what you call them? Is that what jazz Well, we get, we, well, Ming, Mingus first. We see Charles Mingus we're not, just, just we're playing the bass. Okay. okay. First we see him get into his roles, and then uh, this guy has a round Peter Lorre face. This is Rodney. Then we get a shot of Thunderclouds that is very reminiscent of the uh, opening of The Prisoner. Uh, (laughs) And we know it's drama because there's thunder. (laughs) Pathetic fallacy. Yep. I wanted that Lotus, man. Uh It is just, it is a tease. I mean, you talk about the Janus Films logo, or is it Yanis? Is it Yanis? I think it's Yanis. In Goldeneye... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> they say it, Yanis. Right. So, but uh, yeah, I like you. I, I have that just sensory conditioning now. Mm-hmm. I hear the thunderclap, and I then now I, I want to see that lotus zooming zooming down the runway. And you see <laughs> the clouds. They look. They are backlit, right? <laughs> Can you say that about clouds? But yeah, it's the mm-hmm. sun is behind the clouds, and they're kind of glowing. So it's it's exactly the same shot. The the cloud department at Pinewood Studios, uh, <laughs> in, incredible. Almost as good as the backdrop department. Man, Pinewood, uh, I just, you know, I gotta say it. This uh, All Night Long was made at the same place where 
all of the interiors of every goddamn Bond movie was shot, and Alien and Aliens. So and the Star Wars, I think the dagger Star, I, I, you know what? I made this mistake, Glenn, and was corrected on it. Star Wars was at Elstree, not okay. Pinewood. All right, good to know. And I, 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 yeah, incurred a correction by by saying that. All but, right, uh, no, Super- Pinewood, home of many many things that I uh, and and Superman, right? All sure. the the Krypton Krypton uh-huh. set. Uh-huh. I think that's Pinewood. Anyway, pray continue. So he enters a what I thought was a club at first, but it turns out it's a loft apartment that bears a passing resemblance to the apartment in Rope. Um, uh, because it has the kind of overhead window things, then uh, then he does the Mister Ro- the Mister Rogers thing. He he changes out of his tux jacket to get into a cardigan. <laughs> what a way! Who are these people? What are they? What are they doing? What what a waste of time and effort! Just to live back then must have been exhausting to always have to do that kind of bullshit. I I mean I don't think they had. Fabletics in the 60s, <laughs> There was right? no athleisure. Like, right. No, I mean, the cardigan was, was it. I mean, at least it wasn't the Gilded Age. You didn't have no, four different true. dresses before dinner. So. And you didn't have to hook your corset. Yeah. yeah. It's mm-hmm. a whole thing. So uh, when he walks into his apartment, Charles Mingus is already there noodling on the base. And Mingus <sighs> looks like he could have been airlifted from today. Like, <laughs> oh, there is yeah. a casualness, there is a looseness to his whole demeanor and to his clothes that just looks completely... Nobody else in this film looks as cool as Charles Mingus does. It's true. The I, I mean, certainly, I, I would say that that casualness extends to everything but but his line readings. Yeah, sure. <laughs> hey, Rex, don't know about these happenings tonight. No, Delia wanted to surprise him. Cheers. Well, here's to their first anniversary, Rex and Delia. One year down and a long night to go. When it comes to acting, he's a hell of a bassist. He, he avoided the camera, at least. <laughs> <laughs> he reminded me so much of our bassist, and I, I was racking my brain last night. I, I wish I remembered his name. I did, many years ago, a production of My Way, the Frank Sinatra book sure. report slash music review. Um, <laughs> but our bassist was for our jazz trio, our jazz trio in general was amazing, but our bassist had played for Frank Sinatra like for years, had toured mm-hmm. with him, and he was Amazing. I was just yeah. having gorgeous flashbacks. Oh, that's good to know. It <laughs> turns out this is an anniversary party uh, held by Rodney in his fourth pad uh, for Rex and Delia. Rex and Delia were uh, big uh, jazz performers. Rex, uh, they are married. They recently married, I think two years ago. Rex One is still year. performing. This, One, is their first this is the first anniversary. Thank you. This first anniversary, uh, Glenn. This yes. is their first anniversary. Rex is still performing. He uh, asked Delia to give up performing, uh, and she did so reluctantly. And like a good little girl. Like a good little 1962. Have either of you ever heard of this? I mean, I've heard of an engagement party. I've heard of a, like a wedding party and stuff. But the anniversary, that is celebrated, observed by the couple, right? Uh, I um, will say that. A one-year anniversary party is pretty rare. Fifth anniversary, 10th anniversary, 25th anniversary, that is very common. That just seemed strange to me, to organize this massive surprise party with catering. (laughs) Get to the catering. We'll get to the catering. And uh, a custom-made banner. Mm -hmm. Uh, Yes. It's like everyone was surprised that this thing was going to last a year. Yep. <laughs> and and by the way, I noticed uh, upon a close reading of, of the, that that banner of that uh, what's um, what's the Peter Laurie guy's name? Rodney. Rodney. Yes, he asked for a hammer and some tacks, and then we see him, you know, tack tack tacking it to the the wall. It says Rex and Delia something something anniversary, 
and it's supposed to be number like the abbreviation no period one <laughs> it's but no there's one no yeah. periods it, exactly it <laughs> says happy anniversary no one no but that's british that's british nomenclature is actually what that ah. is. Yeah. oh not nefarious it's, it's nope it's n small little tiny o one number two number there you go <sighs> hmm. uh, Okay. Can we talk about the buffet guy? Because I love him. We'll get to him. We're, we're oh, good. Okay. I'm sorry. <laughs> well, Hello, sir. Where would you like us to set the tables? <laughs> the uh, Everything about this film feels stagey, but in the best way. This thing could be put on as a play very, Absolutely. very easily. If you could get a Charlie Mingus or <laughs> Dave Brubeck. But <laughs> like everything about it is so self-contained. And there, it, you can feel a ticking clock even if, as soon as you realize that this thing is going to be... D- film basically continuously consecutively mm-hmm. so uh rodney asks cass who is this very uh angular featured uh symmetrical with blonde the chin dude, the, with the chin. great chin and this blonde blonde hair and i always love how blonde hair looks in black and white photography it just has this it looks like it's drawn it looks like it's crispy you can see i like, recall you have a thing for blondes glenn i well i mean it depends on the blonde <laughs> <but>. <laughs> But it turns out he is the band manager and- Glenn's prefer blondes, uh, famously. Uh, He is the band manager and he asks uh, how the couple is doing. Then the caterers come and let's talk about these caterers. Uh, Oh, what a delight. What a delight, right? Enter. Good evening, sir. Where would you like the buffet placed? Same as last time. You did bring plenty of champagne, didn't you? Usual, sir. What do you have to say about the- He's he's just he he belongs in a musical. Like I want him to be Mm -hmm. in Hello Dolly. I don't know. He's Lumiere, come to life from Beauty and the Beast. He is in a different world than these people. He's so fussy and delightful, and like a little like a little rooster. That would be his. That would be how we and and from anthropomorphized him. Oh, I can't remember that word. Where you make him an animal. He would be a rooster. He is uh, strutting around like a cock of the walk. He has a very Percy <laughs> Dove tonsils vibe to him. Yeah, I, I, I really thought that was going to become a, a Hello Dolly dancing waiters number two because they all kind of like. I mean, it is perfectly <laughs> symmetrical the way the court like like they're they are in formation behind yep. him as yep. as uh, he walked. Like I thought that was going to be a meal, no pun intended, that uh, just just didn't materialize. Well, he and made they, they just... a meal out of his under five role. That That's is for damn sure. True. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and of course, he is Squaresville man, right? But um, <laughs> he doesn't look that <laughs> Slumming in Spook City. Uh, so the caterers come, most of them are sent home, and on the way, as they're leaving, along with little rooster man, they get musically heckled on their way yes. out. Uh, it's so great. To pop goes the wheel. I, what is this going on there? This is the other prisoner connection here, though, right? In, in <laughs> Arrival, the, yep, yep, yep. But, Wait, but you know what you left out? You left out our adorable Moppet teenage boy who's like, can I stay? Oh, right, yeah. I forgot about I you. loved him, too. I knew for sure that he was going to get killed, that he was going to get blown up, you know, <laughs> that he was going to be like one of the first to get killed. Um, because he said, oh, can I stay, sir? Please, please. And and uh, it's Cass or somebody, is there, or it's, uh, I don't know, Peter Laurie. You just said his name, Rodney, Ralphie. Rodney. Rodney. Played by <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, let, let him make himself useful. You but, guys keep calling him Peter. That is fucking Richard Attenborough. Are you kidding me? What? No. That is that is Jurassic oh my Park God. guy. The, the flea circus. <laughs> no. That's John Hammond, the flea circus guy. I am looking guy? at that's it a- on IMDb right now because uh, I was wow. like, I have Boy, got that to. Is, that, that is a big swing and a miss. Wow. 
Yeah. All right. Oh, sorry. I just got all satisfied that I. No, that's good. Thank that's you. Great. That was a moment for me. Never would have. Never would have. <laughs> never. You, you picture a young Richard Attenborough, and you can't picture mm-hmm. a young Richard Attenborough. <laughs> that's the right. thing. Does he always play wealthy men with too well, much I mean, money and too much time? I this is what accent, I, I think he just, he's got to stuck with that. Yeah. So yeah. if if someone had just taken him out at that party, then. <laughs> Humans would still be the dominant species on Earth <laughs> in the 21st What's... century, right? It would be human world dominion. Yeah. And let's, speaking of dinosaurs, Patty McGee enters as Johnny Cousins. Uh-oh. Here comes Cousin John. Easy now. Don't drop him. Just follow me. Hey, 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 Look at that. He bought all his own drums. I told him he could use mine. Yeah, but yours don't have his name on them. I've seen my share of Danger Man. I'm used to seeing him in black and white, but those flesh-colored eyebrows, they disappear. They just oh. disappear in black and white. Yeah. He looks really disconcerting. It might be the hat. He, does, he doesn't have a hat face, I don't think. No. <laughs> and from his entrance, he is not a Patrick McGowan we've seen before. He is up. He's very chummy. He's very personable. So this role's going to be, it feels like it's going to be a stretch for him. Doesn't Othello begin with Iago? Couldn't tell you. Does it not? Certainly, Iago addresses the audience again and again in Othello. Like, I don't think he gets an, an entrance. Like, a, Othello gets an entrance in Othello, but Iago is, is just there. And we we hear people talking about Johnny Cousin for a few minutes before he shows up, mm-hmm. preceded by people carrying his drums that have his name on them. It's quite an entrance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And and it's uh, Johnny Cousin, not Cousin Johnny from Justified, the, the wheelchair-bound uh, confederate of Boyd Crowder. But it's weird that they're setting him up, pumping him up before we, we meet him. And then he complains to, to his wife, complains to everyone else that she's late. She shows up and, and she says, oh, you said you'd wait for me. He says, oh, I told you to be on time. Had to carry those drums myself, which he didn't. She we didn't. saw his yeah. bandmates, his minions, his roadies, whatever, carrying his drums for him. So We're he establishing can't even... very quickly that he is an asshole. He sucks. Right. Yeah. He's getting the villain edit from the jump. Yep. yep. Right. Also, you, you skipped over some salient facts about Cass. Okay. Oh, were Benny. introducing him. Yeah. Okay, oh, and sure. we have to talk about the horn case, because I was very confused. Go nuts. All right. I have the unfortunate thing of being a musician, and whenever I see music done in movies or on TV, I have to look and see if I think they're really playing. Yep. Because I play piano, I play clarinet, I sing, whatever. Yep. Um, so Betty comes in and she says to Cass, like, oh, you left your horn under my bed, or something like that. And then she hands him a case that's like, the audience can't see me. I'm holding my hands up very near it's to tiny. each other. It right. is a tiny thing. I was like, does Cass play the fl- piccolo? <laughs> does Cass play? Is it a, is that a whore? Is that a big enough for a soprano sax? I mean, mm-hmm. most of the sax players I know are Aurelius Rex just didn't need a kazoo player in the band. <laughs> <laughs> Could she not carry the saxophone case? Was she too delicate a lady? I don't know. It was very confusing. That is me. odd, right? I didn't notice that. Being the band nerd that I was in high school, I have seen many a saxophone case. That was not a saxophone case. <laughs> All right. So, well, other other things that we know about about Cass, forsooth, he is a, an arithmetician, a Florentine, a fellow almost damned in a fair wife that never set a squadron in the field, nor the division of a battle knows more than a spinster, okay. unless the bookish theoric, wherein the togged. Consuls can propose as masterly as here, mere prattle without practice in all his soldiership. But he, sir, had the election, and I, of whom his eyes had seen the proof, at Rhodes, at Cyprus, and on other grounds. 
just some other other uh, you know, little little bio about yeah, cast. I didn't, get, I didn't oh, pick well, up on that. Well huh? done. Well kind of done. just uh, kind of just breezed right past that in the movie. Huh? How about that? <laughs> I am not racist against Florentines. <laughs> I, I'm just representing the the play <laughs> as you it was. And Dante. Uh, Johnny says uh, when uh, the couple enters, uh, everybody's going to do a big fat Mendelssohn. Which let's agree. Let's make a pact right here that we will never call it the wedding march ever again. We will only <laughs> refer to it as a big fat Mendelssohn. We'll do a big fat Mendelssohn for their entrance. Isn't that rather corny? What's cornier than an anniversary? And he says a big fat Mendelssohn and then he hums the Wagner <laughs> instead. Yep. Yep. Whoops. Again, everything about this guy is sus. Everything. Everything about <laughs> And when when uh, Rex and Delia come in, everybody starts playing the Imperial March. <laughs> <laughs> he goes upstairs and he calls Mr. Burger. And let me get the, a glimpse of like what the upstairs is. And the upstairs also is very, very cool. I just want to live here. Um, that's where we find out that Johnny is the drummer. He's planning to start his own band by poaching Delia from Rex, which you'd think would, wouldn't be a thing because Delia's not performing, but it would still be a thing because Rex apparently doesn't want her to perform. Rex and Delia arrive... Um, and they play the Big Fat Mendelssohn, and at first, the first time we see Patty McGee playing the drums, we are we, it's an up angle, so we can't see his hands. So I was convinced, oh, total fake, but then later on we do, and he kind of is. Apparently he learned for the movie. I looked that up on on the internet. Yep. He's really playing? Yeah, and apparently so. also kept his drum set and maybe <laughs> played more. I don't know. Maybe he dug playing the drums. That's cool. I thought it looked convincing to my untrained eye, but I, I just kind of figured we weren't hearing his audio. I figured they, they had, you know, a real musician play the, the part. Yep. Well, so don't we also establish in this in this scene where he talks about poaching Delia that Rodney is also very into Delia? Like, mm-hmm. everybody's into Delia. She is hot shit. Yep. I mean, with that hair. Can you blame them? <laughs> can, can you blame them? Indeed. Um, so Dave Brubeck arrives, and they make a thing about Dave Brubeck being there. It's kind of like... <laughs> How did you know that it was Dave Brubeck? Oh, then? they just kept mentioning the word Dave Brubeck again <laughs> and again. It's kind of like on, I think it was Party of Five, Nick Lachey was a guest star, and at one point somebody turns to him and goes, stay out of it, Nick Lachey. So you kind of get, it's that kind of vibe. Uh, Delia tells Johnny she's not going to form the band with him. Uh, he says he wants her, and... Everything about him is creepy and gross and wrong. I am sorry, Johnny. I know how long and how hard you've planned to have your own band. All you think this means to me is is having my own band. You just don't know. But Johnny, you don't need me. Yes, I do. That's exactly what I do need, Delia. I need you. Because I want you. Always have. Johnny. I mean it. I I made all those plans. All of them. Because of you. Johnny, I like you. But don't talk to me like this again, ever. Now we'll forget it, all right? And she really shuts him down. She's she like, really I'm going to pretend that we're not having this conversation and that we never had this conversation and you're not going to talk to me about it again. I was going to say it was almost Midwestern 
<laughs> and I should know because I'm from the Midwest, but yeah. she wouldn't have been that direct. It was just that we would, we're going to pretend like this never happened. That reminded me of the Midwest. Yep. And then those, uh, those crystal blue eyes of uh, Patty McGee start shifting like the dog in the Simpsons. Because <laughs> things up. Uh, this is the moment when we get the cut to Brubeck tickling the ivories, looking straight down the barrel of the camera. I love everything about that. Um, so Johnny and Rodney then talk upstairs. Rodney says he's not going to back the band because he doesn't have Delia. Cousin Johnny says he's in debt up to his neck, and he is convinced himself that Rex and Delia will split any day now. He says that, uh, but Rodney says that Cass tells him they're doing fine. <laughs> you following all this? Because there's a lot here. Um, and so when Rodney says that Cass told him that they're fine, this is very funny to Johnny, performatively funny to Johnny. He laughs uproariously because Johnny tells Rodney that Cass and Delia are hooking up and his wife knows all about it. Okay. So I'm going to give the audience a second or two to kind of absorb all that because... Glenn has been uh, recapping the plot of Clueless. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like we see the moment where he gets the idea yep. to make it, to blame it on Cass. And it's this very like, dun, 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 like <laughs> moment where you see his eyes go kind of wide. It's very, it is a moment. Mm-hmm. And Johnny's wife, Emily, uh, comes in then and he's a complete asshole to her. Thanks for the salty tears, but what you're trying to do, make me look good? Gee, I'm sorry. It, you were in here so long. Is something wrong? Oh, nothing. Go on. Go, go back to your friends. Lush it up. Like. Go back to your friends and lush it up. <laughs> lush it up. Another thing I will never say drunk again. <laughs> I am only going to say lush it up. But like, uh, Chris, you know, when you're watching Patrick McGowan and he's not a dick to a woman, you're like, I don't think I'm, something's missing. Something's missing here. And then when he does, it's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I guess the difference here is that they've had, so we we find out later that they married, I mean, I think he's a little bit older than she is. He is 35. Oh, we get that sad story, yeah. Oh, it's a very sad story. She comes to reveal how they were married, and I think she she said she was still in high school. When they, when she first saw him, yes, it's, it's, it's Yeah, but it's not like they had this long courtship, right? I think it it happened pretty pretty quickly. Yeah, it was a whole thing. Yeah, and basically because she stayed with him, she had to marry him. Yeah. 1962 code, he he was staying in a motel. That's all we need to know. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, and she straight word. up says, I stayed with him. Mm-hmm. And then my, and everybody else got annulled. Like everybody got married that right. night. Right. They, they were said, Mama said, you'll, you'll give it a chance. So we gave yeah. it a chance. Yeah. 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 I was like, oh, girl. Ooh. So it's horribly sad. And I, I mean, I sort We're skipping ahead though. We are, we are, we are. All I'm saying here is this is a slightly different dynamic for McGowan because in this case, we feel like there have been years, 15, 17 years for the animosity to develop between these two. And he's not just reflexively cruel to her because she's a woman from the jump. (laughs) So so that's, that's, uh, you know, that's a shade of difference. And just uh, in terms of acting choices, in every scene he shares with her, he is looking over her shoulder, uh, looking past her. She doesn't matter to him. And everything, everything in his body language and in hers kind of establishes that dynamic. Wait a minute. What's the story on Casandelia? What do you mean? Anything ever go on? Of course not. You know that as well as I do. What is it, Johnny? Are you planning something? Uh, Whatever I'm doing, it's my business. Understand, stay out of it. Don't ask questions. Don't talk. That way we'll get along fine. Uh, Sure, Johnny. You you know I never talk about your business. 
Honey, please. I wish you wouldn't. Not, not, not tonight. Oh, Emily, honey, get out. Will you leave me alone? Oh my God. We find out that Johnny made up the whole thing about Cass and Delia, and then he tells Emmy, Emmy, honey, get out. He doesn't say it like that, but he should, but he says, get out, leave me alone. <laughs> Betsy Blair. Mm-hmm. Betsy Blair. I mean, she looks as, like a Betsy uh, Blair, doesn't she? Yeah. I think she's really good in this. The way that, that she enters every scene just bright-eyed before he has a, a, a chance to shut her down. Like, she's so desperate for conversation. She's so desperate to be included. Mm-hmm. You get the impression she doesn't get out much. I felt so, so badly for for this character. Intensely vulnerable. Intensely. As soon as he's alone, uh, he takes a puff of that ganja, that stinkweed, that kush, (laughs) a jazz cigarette, (laughs) literally a jazz cigarette. And the marijuana music comes up with this, like... (laughs) Half-step tremolo in the flute. I was like, okay, that's getting high music, yep. It totally is, those dank nugs. (laughs) Look, this film was made in 1962, sure, but it was also made outside of America. The Hayes Code wasn't a thing. But the reason we saw that most suitable for adults is exactly because of this. Because of this illegal substance... I think I would I would love to to get the oral history here. There's not going to be one of this movie, but like <laughs> anybody who uses marijuana in this film comes to a bad end. Um, Cass is laid low. Uh, of course, uh, Johnny Cousin is laid low. I think it's I don't know if it was contractually like mandated or just yeah the the time, but uh, there is a deep moralistic. Uh, say no to drugs vibe to this much more effective than the dare programming I had in the 90s Mm, absolutely The two writers credited on this, whose, whose names I should know, neither of them were Bob Roberts, who I think is the, the producer. The times are changing back, Glenn. But this is a good bit of compression from Othello here in this scene, because we're, we're conflating the scene where Iago gets Cassio drunk to discredit him in, the, you know, in Othello's eyes with the whole handkerchief business, which mm-hmm. in this version is a cigarette case yes. uh, that, uh, Chekhov's that Rex cigarette case, yes. Yes. Right. <laughs> has, has given to, to Delia as a gift. If you know what happens to the handkerchief in, in Othello. And all of that is introduced in this scene where Johnny peer pressures Cassio, mm-hmm. sorry, Cass, <laughs> yeah. into lighting up. After, after he gave it up, basically, you know, calls him, calls him a pussy, says, um, you know, he only stopped getting high because Rex didn't like it. All your friends are doing it. Well, but we established also that, you know, that Cass owes Rex so much and, you know, he took a chance. It sounds like he got him out of jail, maybe. <laughs> and and also, like, got him a psychiatrist, maybe. Um, Wait. Here's what happens. Uh, Sorry. Okay. Uh, we see Rex and Delia canoodling. They are very much in love. That is it's important. The film goes out of its way to establish that. Then yep. Johnny swipes Delia's uh, cigarette case, the one she yep. got from Rex. Mm-hmm. And then later in the ladies, uh, Delia admits to Emily that she misses working. And that's when Emily tells the sad, pathetic story of her meeting and marrying uh, Johnny. And uh, she goes, isn't that romantic? <laughs> and Delia's like, uh. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and later she says, no, earlier she says, he's not mean exactly. And it's like, oh, girl, <laughs> run, run the fuck away. I am mean. so glad, yeah. though, that we get to establish, because in the first scene with Delia and Johnny, 
or sorry, Delia and Rex, mm-hmm. it's it's like, oh, we were so in love. Like you said, they established that very clearly. But they also, she seems maybe like, oh, it's fine that I gave this up. I'm totally fine with it. Like, I mm-hmm. did it for you. I'm great. And then we actually do get to hear her say, actually, I'm yeah. not fine with it. I really miss it. Mm-hmm. I'm really glad that we get that for the tension factor. Mm-hmm. But also so we give Delia a little spine. Right, right. So, So we can kind of inch this movie uh, uh, you know and have the have the film not so much pass the Bechdel test but at least have a scene where two women are talking to each other <laughs> about careers yes sure about careers Again, yes <laughs> at the other point Emily says um, I don't think he cares at all about other women oh okay all right <laughs> okay not just uh, I merely note it <laughs> you yes. don't disagree right I don't disagree <laughs> I think she's correct. So this is when Johnny and Cass go outside and that kind yeah. of rainy balcony thing. He offers him <laughs> weed, uh, teases him about being indebted to Rex. So Cass goes and takes a pull. There's a weird jump cut in here. It's the only kind of like oh yeah editing thing that like that you notice in this film, which goes out of mm. its way to be as contiguous and smooth as possible. They he cut did. to him reacting to that first toke, and it's yep. like it's like practically snidely whiplash. It's amazing. It totally is. If he had if he had eyebrows, he would twirl them. Uh, he gives Cass's this rooftop. This is a set with a fake drip backdrop. Oh, right? oh, that backdrop was so <laughs> fake. London Bridge is just hanging out right there. Yeah, it's great. It's basically painted. Uh, so this is where he gives Cass Delia's cigarette lighter and tells him that Lou Berger doesn't like the fact that Cass is managing the band. And then then, then a little bit later, this is the joke mm-hmm. about last white American jazz musicians. Right. Phone booth, yada, yeah. yada, He said Lou Berger says he's a Florentine. <laughs> <laughs> a mathematician. So when Cass comes back to the party, he is acting squirrely. And I don't think the film knows the difference between high and drunk. I'm, I'm, I'm not sure mm. the film is is quite there. But uh, Delia goes over to Cass. Between pot and juice? Between pot and juice. Um, then Johnny takes Rex upstairs. There's a lot of, can I steal you away for a second? A lot of, lot of that in this movie. Yep. Johnny takes Rex upstairs, tells him that Cass is back on the funny ones. Again, <laughs> we must amend our vocabulary. Yes. He's back on the funny ones. They see Cass and Delia together. Johnny plants a bug in his ear, or maybe he pours poison into his ear, perhaps. Mm. Mm. Uh, this is where Cass goes over to Lou Berger and insults him by basically being a bro, a jazz bro, a toxic jazz nerd. <laughs> it must be fun to be a star maker, especially when you don't know anything about jazz. I thought you said he was good. <laughs> when I say it's good and when you say it's good, that's two different things. Take it easy. Can we talk mm. briefly about Cass's accent that he yep. suddenly has when he's huh. high. Did anybody that. else notice that? No, no, go. go, go oh, on. y'all. Okay, you're gonna have to go back and watch this because Cass, who has sounded relatively American for the rest of the movie, suddenly sounds like it sounds like the high school kid who's trying to give you vague <laughs> Eastern Western European like they, like it's really. All over the map, and oh, I yeah. I looked him up on IMDb at that point, and apparently the actor was Australian. Oh, see, there you go. <laughs> like, the difference. <laughs> okay. Here's what you got to know about Kerouac, man. Hey, Mr. Berger, <laughs> do you agree with Carrier that the content of music is pure libido symbolism? Huh? Carrier, what instrument does he play? <laughs> or perhaps you agree with Margolis, who says that 
music represents regressive narcissism. You've heard of Margot? I've met him. Where on earth would you have met him? Oh, and Bongo Guy. We This is where we get Bongo Guy, this who is, is Bongo awesome. Guy. Yes, he is. Hey, is that the Brazilian pistol? He's got to be a real musician. Oh, he's definitely. Musician. He definitely, definitely. Okay. There's a lot of um, kind of subtle moving camera in this movie, but we get one of those dynamic push-ins on, on his hands oh, during during that performance. So cool. And uh, yeah, I thought that was great. It's like great. the energetic camera work in this film was just very well judged. It wasn't excessive. You know, it wasn't confusing. It, it, it wasn't trying to do something that didn't didn't need to be juiced. Like it really felt informed by the by the music or by the emotion in, in the scene. Really, really dug it. Well, there's an interesting moment with Bongo Guy and Johnny, you know, because as you said, this is the scene where Johnny has this whole thing about like the last white American jazz, which is hilarious. <laughs> Our grand meeting in a phone booth. Sit in, Paco. Johnny will lend you his drums. Right, Johnny? <laughs> I think you'd have more fun with Rodney's, complete with bongos, congas, maracas, and genuine native oil cans. I would just enjoy to listen to Mr. Cousin, whose work I know well from the records. Me? Oh, I belong to that new minority group, White American Jazz Musicians. They're going to hold a mass meeting in a phone booth. <laughs> the bongo guy is super gracious to him. Like, he's... He's like complimenting him and saying, "Oh, I just want to see you play." Like, it's because they could be. Competitive. <laughs> I know your work from the records. Johnny <laughs> has a serious scarcity mindset, and he really needs uh-huh. to work on that. Like, it's That's it's really just pretty sad. Yeah. Uh, but with everybody's attitude towards psychiatry in this movie, I don't think that's going to happen anytime <laughs> soon. Uh, so Delia ushers Cass out, and then Berger goes over and tells Rex to fire Cass as a manager because he's going to finish up in a cackle academy. Mm, this movie. This movie. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Ugh. I just want to eat it up. The episode of Moon Knight that I watched last night, I was like, wait, is it in the Cackle Academy or is it in the underworld? Is the like, what the hell is happening here? I am, I am unmoored. And uh, Delia's like treating Cass like a mom. Like yes, it's totally very is. mom vibe. Yep. Yep. Uh, because, of course, he's so high. <laughs> <laughs> Rex goes up to the roof where Cass and Delia are uh, again. And, you know, he sees them together. She's being very um, maternal, as you say. Uh, but, and, it, but affectionate in but a way affectionate. that, of course, our jealous hero just misses. Like, he puts his jacket around her because she's shivering in her gorgeous ivory gown. And mm-hmm. yeah, and yeah. he's like, don't you dare give my girl your jacket. It was very sad. Does she thing. have a, a mode that's not maternal? How would you describe her vibe when she's with Rex? We should say this is this is Marty Stevens, yep. by the way, as uh, Delia Lane with the late Judy Garland era eyebrows. Yeah, I mean, like Delia Lane is such a perfect name for that kind of like this a, a singer of this era. Like, yep. ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Delia Lane. It's perfect. <laughs> you can just see the nightclub. You can just see it. Um, so Rex calls Cass a hophead <laughs> because he had wah, 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 a jazz one jazz <laughs> falling off the wagon. You're done. Yep, hophead is. I had actually heard that somewhere before. Of course, it means, but it means heroin. It means heroin. Addict. Okay, okay, that I, I didn't know. Like, 
This is a very Nancy Reagan approach to, <laughs> to drugs. Uh, he tells him that he's out of the band for at least a couple of months, and then downstairs... What was Nancy we... Reagan doing? When was uh, Reagan governor of California? <laughs> oh, was the, that? That was, like, later, The right? 70s, that was... I think, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Sorry. Uh, we see Johnny hit no skins, and he is just kind of basking. Evil up drums. The havoc he's wrought, right? He's like, he is providing a backbeat to evil, to chaos. Um, and this is what I we just see. wrote, he's drumming into their souls. <laughs> but this is awesome. Another one of those cool push-ins. His face when he's he's drumming is oh. is maniacal. Oh. I loved it. I loved yep. it. Really exciting. Eyes dart, eyes dart, eyes dart. Cass and Benny... <laughs> Uh, his girlfriend, have a scene. Johnny talks to Cass about Benny in the upper room there, the loft, and tell and turns on the tape recorder and lets Cass talk about not knowing what to do with Benny and their relationship. And then Cass... Gets- I just want to give a little a little uh, a reverence to this this beautiful like console, reel-to-reel, oh my God, single weird. microphone tape recorder, but I mean, <laughs> it has its own piece of furniture that houses it. And it's all like one probably mono microphone. It's probably, you just point it in the direction, but a, a lovely vintage yes. piece of uh, uh, Demonstrating for all you listeners at home, terrible microphone placement. Don't do, don't do <laughs> what Johnny Cousin does. Um, Cass gives Johnny the cigarette case. Now, this cigarette case, it goes in a bunch of different places, and it doesn't kind of fire like Chekhov's gun the way it should. It kind of like keeps changing hands and I kind of lost it at certain mm. points and I thought it was going to end up like oh I see I Rex see that uh, Cass has the cigarette case it never comes out like that it's a, it's a little more complicated than I think it needs to be yeah and, and the whole thing is is a crime of opportunity there because we just see I don't remember what or, or who summons Delia away but she's sitting on the couch she leaves her cigarette case on the coffee table and we see Johnny then dart over and he actually does the kind of check around to make sure no one yeah. sees him and, you know, then picks it up and slips it into his into his jacket pocket and does another little uh, ain't I a stinker kind of uh, kind of expression. Yep. But uh, yeah, clearly like that was not premeditated. Uh-huh. He just saw her forget it. Delia comes up and tells Cass that she's going to talk to Rex. Johnny then, when they're gone, goes up to the tape recorder, removes a reel, then takes Rex aside and tells and tells him not to worry about Delia and Cass. You know, basically join that thing where you tell somebody the opposite of what you want them to think about. Don't mm-hmm. think about an elephant. Uh, then this is where Delia sings all night long. Um, while upstairs, Johnny is tampering with the coder and splicing the tape together. And I was convinced it would be, I was convinced we were good, it was going to turn into Columbo, where when they play back the tape, <laughs> we hear... Uh, Delia singing all night long in the background. So it couldn't have been when you said it happened. Oh, I figured, yeah. I figured oh, that's where it was okay. going. I overthought. I did really like that song. And I yeah. felt the sitting on the stairs was kind of iconic. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. It's a great shot. The, what, near here is one of those shots that goes from the the bottom of the staircase up to the top of it, uh, along yeah. the spiral staircase mm-hmm. that is just like, it's showy, but fuck, it looks great. Um is she sitting next to Rex? She on is, the and sort of singing number? to him. It's this mm-hmm. very romantic, like very connected moments. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love the scene in isolation. I, I kind of wondered about staging it that way, since we all, like, it's all going to come together that um, she's going to perform this other number for Rex mm-hmm. as another surprise. But it's this new style that uh, she's been working on <laughs> with with Cass, style. and yeah. Well. She does let us know that it's new by going boop, boop, ba-doop. Oh, yeah. 
Well, it, okay, but it is very different because I feel like I feel like the you know all night long it's this very traditional ballad. It's a torch you know, song, she gets yeah. these like juicy portamentos between the notes and and the tone. For the dawn, for the dawn, and my heart to break. It felt actually throwback for, and I am not a jazz expert, it felt throwback to me for the 60s. Like it felt more mm-hmm. like like late 50s girl, girl singer style. And then she gets this boppy number later. But it's interesting because, Chris, as you said, like this song, she sings two wrecks in this very close, it's very musical theater moment. Um, and then like the number that is supposedly four wrecks later, she really almost mostly sings two casts, mm-hmm. which does yeah. not look good, Delia, does not look good. Mm-hmm. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. So just, I mean, just having her sing that one right next to Rex, you know, with her face Eight inches away from his. But we do get plenty of shots, Chris, of him looking imperiously down his John Waters mustache at her. <laughs> Look, he's, he, is, he is not quite buying it as she's yeah. singing to him. And I think that's important. Uh, so Johnny tampering with this recording, he is splicing tape together. That is not Evil easy editing. to do. That is like... No, he's ed- working fast. When I started at NPR... Uh, Tom, my uh, who had been at uh, NPR forever, was like, yeah, we used to have to do this, you know, turn it around. We taped, come back to HQ, and we turn it around by slicing the tape together. It's like, he, this is this is a skill. This is not a skill that a lot of people have, but for whatever reason. Johnny has done this before. Apparently he's saying. very, Johnny, very good at it. <laughs> Johnny is a skilled blackmailer, mm-hmm. tape forger. So Rex then goes upstairs. Johnny runs up some aspirin to him because he's got a splitting headache. He's been he's been kind of right. touching his temple throughout the movie. So like, yeah. set up, set up, set up. Yeah. Uh, In the play, Othello starts having seizures. Uh, okay. <laughs> Rex Rex ah. just has headaches. <laughs> okay, and the other thing that I noticed, especially since you know paying attention to Patty Patty's voice, mm-hmm. um, he has this very interesting sort of like eager beaver tone with yep. Rex. It's yep, like yep, yep, yep. everything's fine, right? Like it's much higher pitched than his than his regular <laughs> voice. And it's like you're working a little hard. Yeah, it totally is. That's a good point. Yeah. And that is, that is a thing when he is when he is doing deception, his voice goes up a, a oh. half octave or two. Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, that is a, a thing with him. So he's stirring the pot. He says. She gave him a cigarette case and also says that he accidentally taped Cass and Delia, like you do. You know, people people do that. Slip on the thing. Rex goes then goes out on the balcony and watches, looking down from the balcony as she pour as she performs that up tempo jazz number. Uh-huh. This, and she's scatting, or if a white person can scat, she's scatting. Um, and Rex is just scowling. He is seeing how Cass and Delia are grooving together. Then Rex takes Emily aside and asks about Cass and Delia. She, voice of reason, tries to shoot him down. Uh, then Rodney comes in and Rex asks him about any gossip that's been going around. Delia comes in. She asks about her cigarette case. And at this point, there is 15 minutes left in this movie and the Chekhov's <laughs> cigarette case has not gone off. And I'm like, what's going to happen? Like, when, yep. when are we going to get to the fireworks factory? Berger tries to convince Rex to let Delio go back Thank on the you. stage. 
Thank you, Berger. Thank yeah, you for right? saying she's an artist. <laughs> Let her work. Mm-hmm. Johnny convinces Rex to listen to the tape by trying to get him to not listen to the tape because that's how <laughs> evil people yes. are evil. Uh-huh. Um, uh-huh. And he's very good in that trying to convince him. He's very convincing mm-hmm. in that. Uh, yeah, I like that he comes back and, and reminds Rex. He's like, hey, I've been thinking about that tape. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> and why don't I just erase it? I mean, you might have moved on, but I haven't. There is a weird thunderclap or two in this whole, like, moment <laughs> That's here. where I wrote, did we need the thunderclap? <laughs> it's like... like... I, I did. Yeah. <laughs> then when he hears it, Rex runs up to Delia and assaults her. Shoves no, her... No, hang on. Did, did we say that the, the source of the tape that Johnny manipulated, it was actually Cass talking to um, Benny? Well, it's Cass talking to Benny and then Cass talking to Delia and he sort of splices the mm-hmm. two conversations. Like he takes his voice and replaces Benny's voice with his voice to make it sound like right. they're talking. Yeah, and then, yeah. Mm-hmm. But Cass is talking about Benny. I, I love her and she's a great girl, but it can't go on like this. Yeah. And, mm-hmm. and, and right, he manipulates it. So when Cass is speaking about Benny, it sounds like he's speaking about Delia. Yep. Mm-hmm. Yep. So uh, Rex shoves her into the bedroom, proceeds to choke her on the bed. Oof. Iconic. Classic. Yep. You know, shout out. Shout out to <laughs> the Bard of Avon. Uh, and Rod, Cass and Rod are banging on the door like drums. Right? A little? Oh, okay. Maybe a little on the nose? No. They, they, okay. They were, they were syncopated. Yeah, I can <laughs> hear that. Syncopated banging. I swear, though, when we cut to the crowd, yeah. um, and this may have been all the jazz musicians, I swear to God, I heard like hubbub, hubbub, hubbub. Murmur. School, like, murmur, yeah, right? murmur, murmur, murmur. <laughs> yeah, Robert Altman had not. Exactly. <laughs> it was not a thing yet. They were, they were just uh, <laughs> peas and carrots, peas and carrots. Um, <laughs> So they barge in, they see him strangling her. He punches Cass, who then falls over the railing. (laughs) Totally. And then Emily calls Johnny a liar. It is Emily who will bring this whole thing, this whole house of cards, uh, because uh, she says he's a liar. He's always been a liar. I know this guy. Uh, And then she gets Cass to say that Johnny was behind the whole thing. Um, well, because we need a man to back her up, because otherwise, <laughs> why are you yeah. going to believe just a lady? I mean, what are you going to know? She's, she's, she's um, thinking about flowers. Again, in the play, Iago stabs her. Amelia, right? yeah. Doesn't he kill her after she yep. he tells does, everyone that he... does, yeah. yeah I'm, so. I'm glad Emily gets to live. Uh-huh. Me too. But, okay, Patrick McGowan's, like, bit after he's caught red-handed yep. is iconic Sibling. to me. It's oh, <laughs> just like he's literally, it's, it's a little bit, it's giving me Gollum. It's, <laughs> it's just a little. Yep. Uh, and he tries to escape, and he's rescued, of course, by Delia, who is just uh, Madonna, who is basically uh. just the universal mother who forgives all. Uh. Yeah, you talked about her maternal dynamic with Cass, and I, I don't know that I see another side of her with, with Rex, Um well, Rex, she he, but, she's just like the submissive wife with Rex. Mm-hmm, she's just mm-hmm. like the loving, like stars in her eyes. Yeah, he can do. I'll give up. I mean, and she even says, or no, it's Emily that says in their girl conversation, like, "Oh, well, your marriage works because you gave something up for him. Like, yeah. that's why mm-hmm. it." Wor- I was like, "Oh, <laughs> <laughs> 60s. Oh. 
Yeah. I mean, Rex, he might be a little bit older than, than Delia, but in, in the play, it's suggested well that Othello matched. is much older than Desdemona, mm-hmm. right? To the point that he actually has some lines about how basically like his ardor has cooled and, and how he would sort of understand, you know, he would get it if, if since Desdemona is so much younger than, than he is, if she were interested in, in other men. But basically, it takes Iago in the play to sort of initiate Othello's sexual jealousy. He does not start out that way. Mm-hmm. He even has this early speech where he's like, I, I love her for her mind. It's it's not a it's not a passionate love affair, but but it's but it's genuine. And Iago is like, well, I'm gonna have to fix that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Rex goes over to Cass, and they have this um, hilarious oh, God. man moment. It's like, you good? Yeah. Sup, bro? No. <laughs> Women be shopping, right? Like, yeah. Totally, yeah. It's like, <laughs> Jesus Christ. And that's when he says, everything's cool. <laughs> and I wrote down, everything is not exactly. indeed cool. No. It's a C4 injury, bro. It's cool. <laughs> it's, it's not. It's not, not, it's not cool. cool. <laughs> Delia chases after Rex because, of course, she fucking does. Back yep. to the party, they're loading Cass into an ambulance. It's kind of a party killer is, you know, attempted murder <laughs> and then like a nefarious <laughs> plot revealed. Everybody's like, I guess Rodney's there's like, no more jazz. Exactly. Rodney's like, yeah, thank you for coming. Don't forget your swag bag. There's a, <laughs> don't, don't, make sure to get, go to the swag tent and before. Uh, so Johnny <laughs> is sitting at the drum kit. Emmy comes up to him. Like, the party's over. It's time to call it a day. So Emmy uh, comes up to him and says she loves him. This lying, yeah. sniveling. <gasps> I brought your jacket. I brought, I brought your jacket. She's not. Like I brought a your dog. jacket so you She's can like leave puppy. and walk out of my life. It's yeah. yeah it's so sad. Uh, he says, uh, "I love nobody, not even myself." It's like okay, all right. Don't you don't get to have the epiphany at the end of this movie, guy? Like everything you've said and done kind of testifies to that. You don't need to yeah. tell us. Everybody loves it. everybody. I don't get it. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Why don't you go? Without you? Sure. Walk out on me like all the others did. No. (laughs) Nothing would ever make you walk out on me, would it? I love you. Don't you understand? I don't want to be loved. But Johnny... But Johnny, but Johnny, I love you, I love you, I love you, you love she, everybody loves everybody, well I don't see, I love nobody, don't even love Johnny. Get out Emily, go find somebody else to love. He sends her away, but she should. The one noble act that he's done yeah. in this fucking movie. He tells he her, find someone else to love. My for. God, and please, Emily, do. Get some please. therapy and Absolutely. find a new man. A or new maybe man. you and Delia can run yeah. off into the sunset because, frankly, all the men in this movie are trash. <laughs> 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 you know, she, and, she and Benny? I don't know. Oh, okay. Ca- you know what? Cass is I think fine. Benny is also we'll underappreciated by, uh, mm-hmm. by Cass. That's right? true. Yeah. Uh, and yeah, so then he's alone in there, and this is, you know, like you a could see on the, wall. the play, like it, the play version of this, like there is a spotlight on his face, everything else, you know, um, yep. goes to, goes dark, spotlight on him, he hits the skins, 
curtain, right? Like that's that's the end of this film. You need another explosion, right? Because we don't have we're taking away both the murders, and I'm not arguing that that they should stay. But uh, Iago does not kill Amelia. Uh, Othello um, Rex does not kill Desdemona. Well, I the mean, very Delia. last <laughs> I'm shot. I'm complaining all my names now. Okay, but. but the very, very last shot is Rex and Delia walking off into the moonlight together. Mm-hmm. He mm-hmm. puts his arm around her, and then on the very last beat of music, she puts her arm around him. And I was like, no! <laughs> <laughs> Sorry about the strangling. Really thought it was strangling. going to. Because there's a long shot of Rex walking away on his own after after Rex has nearly killed her, mm-hmm. and he has that that beautifully played moment. Um, I don't know if we said yet that Paul Harris is is Rex, but when he sees the mark that he's left yep. on her throat, and he looks at his hand, and he's so horrified by what he's done, and I, I'm sure that men who habitually abuse women will have these occasional moments of insight and revulsion where they recognize the horror of their behavior and then don't change yeah. continue the abuse it's just, it's just you don't listen babe you just you just make me do this what's uh. that? that yeah and, and it's tough to position rex here right because as in the play we understand that he is not innately abusive he's been driven to this by evil, evil scheming right by johnny cousin so ugh. yeah he is probably gonna like he's he feels like he no longer deserves her because there's a whole thing they have that conversation where he's like which is, oh, just red flags a go-go, like lamest size red flags where he's like, sometimes in the middle of the night I wake up and I think that you've walked out on me and then I see that you're still here and I just want to keep you all to myself. I'm mm-hmm. like, Delia, you in danger, girl. <laughs> I thought we were going to end with with Rex just, just walking away. You know, Delia runs after him. And then and like before, there's there's that kind of long unbroken shot of him walking and then we go back to Cass being loaded into the ambulance mm-hmm. and then we go back to Delia you know running after him and that cue again dun, 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 dun. I don't know how the British film industry of the early 60s worked I do know this is one of three movies that this director Basil Dearden made during during this year so so busy guy and it came in the middle of like a, a social justice phase mm-hmm. where uh, I mean this film is dealing with with questions of of race and there's a, a frank discussion of, of drugs um, f- for the time, but this feels to me like it could be a studio mandated mm-hmm. reshoot of an ending. You know, where instead of the straight up tragic ending of the play, we have a still tragic but more muted, uh, ambiguous ending. It, it reminded me of the part in The Player where, you know, Richard E. Grant is the screenwriter who writes the movie where Julia Roberts is supposed to die in the gas chamber. And then when we actually see the film cut together, uh, Bruce Willis barges into the gas chamber and takes her in his arms and saves her at the 11th hour. And it's it's the, the fake happy ending that we'd seen them rail against earlier in the film. It's mm-hmm. what I was thinking about. Yeah, but if Rex had taken a single puff in this film, he would, oh, he would end up dead. Yeah. He would end up yeah. dead. Yep, that's just the way it works. Mm. He he did give you, the, I mean, the actor was wonderful. I mean, I mm-hmm. thought he gave you nice shades of of some vulnerability there. Mm-hmm. That, But still, I mean, I mean, and this is the central problem with Othello the love story. Like, <laughs> if, you're, if you're that jealous naturally it's original that, like, title. anybody can plant seeds in your mind about your significant other like mm-hmm. this is the problem mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. the problem yeah Any, anybody can be iago paul harris by the way goes on to star in uh, across 110th street truck turner 
and Jive Turkey. So okay. uh, I think if I go turn off my Criterion channel and go over to my, my Brown Sugar app, mm-hmm. I will probably find some other Paul Harris films. I bet his mustache gets a lot healthier looking than <laughs> <laughs> those other films. Mm-hmm. Ooh, he, this, he was one of the only... I mean, he was the only principal that you never saw him. Well, I guess you saw his fingers maybe once. Mm-hmm. I mean, when you have all these real jazz musicians and then next to actors who are faking being mm-hmm. jazz musicians, it was a little awkward, like yep. thinking of him as the brilliant pianist band leader. Paul Harris was definitely a singer. He did a lot of musical theater. I'm just looking at his bio here, but uh, piano, who knows? Was Cass faking it, playing the sax? Could you tell? I couldn't tell. I could not tell. He was, Mm -hmm. I, probably, but I Mm -hmm. think he was doing a very good job of that. I mean, Mm -hmm. you can be really bad on a wind instrument, (laughs) really bad faking it. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so we're rating this movie, right? Yeah, I did send Casey a a selection of the the many voices of of Patty (laughs) McGee. Over the years, and as as someone who studies voices, who advises people on how to make the the greatest use of theirs, who's who's been a, a singer for for most of her life, I thought it would be informative to hear her tell us what uh, to the degree that it is knowable <laughs> by <laughs> by any mortal what Patty is doing in in each of these sweet performances. This yes, is a lot so of uh, don't turn this off fifteen or twenty minutes before the end. Listen to the the whole thing. All right, our ratings. I think the guest should go first. Oh, is this on a scale of six or a yes, scale it totally of ten? Is, yes. Of okay. Well, all right. <laughs> so so you're an it getter. I get her. I. It. <laughs> uh, okay. I really enjoyed it. I'm gonna give it. I'm gonna give it a five and a half. Uh huh. Cool. <laughs> yeah, I dug it. I mean, no notes, right? Like five out of six. Yeah. Look, if I gave. Thomasina, <laughs> the three lives of Thomasina. I think I gave that a three and a half or a four. I don't know. I keep uh, pumping up my my grades. Moonshine War was a four and a half. I'm I'm giving this a six, mm-hmm. baby. I gave I gave Braveheart a five, so <laughs> I kind of give this a six. You know, and I mean, this is up there with Braveheart in terms of nefarious Patty McGee. I mean, this this is dastardly young Patty McGee. That's dastardly old Patty McGee mm-hmm. playing a character where the effect of his evil has had a corrosive physical effect on his body mm-hmm. over the decades. Um, yeah, what would I change about this? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. It's a six. I just wanted Delia to walk into the sunset and get her jazz career back, but yep. I know I can't put my 2000 sensibilities onto a 1960s film. Well, if Lou Berger was still there when uh, Dex threw Cass over the railing, maybe maybe Rex's, I'm sorry, Rex threw Cass over the railing. Maybe Rex's career yeah. isn't lock solid anymore. You know what I mean? It seems possible. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you know, you want to heal your marriage, Rex. I mean, A, get some counseling. B, uh, maybe consider letting your wife, I don't know, do the thing that she loves. Like, that mm. would be nice. That would be, it, was a, it would be a step in the right direction, Rex. Mm-hmm. But Rex is clearly, yeah. I'm sorry, uh, but uh, Lou Berger is clearly like a business guy who <laughs> tolerates this whole jazz hophead thing. It's not, his, it's not his world, clearly, as Cass pointed out to him. Sit down and like listen like the rest of us music lovers. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. uh, so maybe this is the kind of thing, attempted murder, <laughs> two counts of attempted murder. <laughs> he tried to kill two people, basically. Did, yeah, not, not a good so maybe, look. Yeah, so maybe, maybe this will, maybe Delia will get 
a career. Maybe get a, she'll get a record deal out of Rex this. Rex can and, retire. And Rex she can, can support retire. both of them. Mm-hmm. It'll be great. Okay, I did actually go a little down the Othello rabbit hole after watching this movie and ended up on a YouTube clip of the rehearsal scene from Stage Beauty where apparently mm. Billy Crudup invents naturalistic acting during, uh, <laughs> 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 while, while berating Claire Danes into giving a great performance. Oh, no. Uh, yeah. Stage beauty. I'm trying to figure out if this is pre or post Dr. Manhattan. Mm. I would not know. So, so that that was the the Zack Snyder iteration of Watchmen, which was '09. When did when did Stage Beauty come out? I should. Ooh. This is my only skill is knowing when <laughs> when movies came out, and I'm I'm typing, so you can tell that I'm, I'm not relying. Two thousand seven. Okay, so it's uh it's it's pre Doctor Manhattan and his his big blue wang. Um, for for uh, cheers. Although you never know. I mean, that was like a mocap performance or something, so he could have shot it way before, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. We don't know. Anyway, sorry. Re- rehearsal. Oh no, 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 beauty. no! I just was like, uh-huh. I was look looking at at all of the Othello adaptations that have happened because I was interested in how closely this movie hewed to the original script, and there were, it was. I mean, it was pretty close in terms of the characters. It was very interesting. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, I do like that uh, Rex is called Rex because Othello was a king, you know. That's cool. <laughs> well, that's, that's you know. <laughs> it works. I'm, I'm easily amused. <laughs> yes. Uh, Othello, a, a character who's been played by everyone from Orson Welles to... Uh, Anthony Hopkins in the 80s, yeah. <laughs> apparently. Uh, Laurence Olivier. Yeah, I, I, saw, I saw Patrick Stewart in, in the Shakespeare Theater. He I've was, read about that. He was the only white dude in a cast of... And a black that cast. Yeah. production got very poor reviews. Yeah, it's, right? it's, they were right. <laughs> okay, but I mean, I don't, I don't think it was. I, I mean, this is in the early '90s. I think does that sound uh, the, no, the right? No, I, I was um, in DC, so it was it's mid '90s. I think so. Okay, that's a choice. Their objections were not just that, like to to the race reversal of the casting. It was just that this was not a good production, right? They weren't saying like this is inappropriate and no one should do this. No, it's just that it didn't make sense. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay, it didn't. It was a it was a big swing that didn't couldn't wasn't justified by anything that was on that stage. Perhaps my favorite line from all of all of Super Ego. Uh, shout out to past and hopefully future guest Matt Gorley. As uh, I think this whole thing was just so that you could say more. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! <laughs> All right, so are we talking about Patty? Patty's voice. Yes, Let's do it. I because I digressed. I. Mm. All this is is a digression. <laughs> Can I get another drink? Because I really want to. I've, I've been looking forward to this since we since we started oh, doing gosh. this. Oh gosh! Yeah. Oh, well. Okay. Oh, but you All can't right. get a drink, Casey. That's not fair. I know. Uh, it's actually, you know, I mean, it's your studio. I like my... you really ought to. Do you not have a? Should get a. I don't have a, a little bar flask in my studio. In your, uh, a mini fridge at least. Mm. Yeah, I would right. consider well, gonna... a mini fridge. Okay, all right. Be back let's take in a let's take sixty seconds. <laughs> to hear what you all think about Mr. McGowan's voice. Um, I mean, I, I've heard some commentary. 
obviously. Mm-hmm. I've, sure. I have not. I I will admit that I have not listened to every episode of this podcast, but. I did not really predict how much of the show would just just be the sweaty Magoon impressions. Um, <laughs> that's, uh, that's most of what it is. Yeah, it's singular, right? He has. It's not just the voice; it's the timbre, it's the approach, it's the it's the way he uses it, the way that these consonants in his uh, words kind of slam shut. So, yeah. You know, so he gives he gives it. Uh, he he gives it some he puts some English some moxie on the ball. Uh, There's some athleticism there mm-hmm. in the diction, definitely. Mm-hmm. I was very fascinated to discover in my research that he was born in Astoria in Queens, <laughs> yeah. and then moved yeah. to Ireland, and then yeah. moved to the UK. So that I mean, uh-huh. that's really now. I wonder what his voice would have been like if he'd actually stayed in New York for like the first 10 years of his life or something. Yeah, he would have had a Queens accent. Um, boy, I don't know. I, he must have had a role at some point where he is doing a New Yorker. But Oh, I would think. I mean, yeah. and so in the clips that you sent me, I heard, I definitely heard some different accents. I heard the like classic mid-Atlantic. I heard the very... Uh, British with the rolled R's. Mm-hmm. I like. I heard. Um, I mean, one that Glenn, Glenn loves. He yeah. does love to roll an R. That is for sure. Um, yeah, there's a there's a staccato quality to his voice that like so, very clipped. Okay. Yep. 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 Mm-hmm. <laughs> but he also he can draw out a vowel with the best of them. He can mm-hmm. he can paint a picture with a vowel. It's it's exciting. I, I don't think I sent you his uh, recitation of Home on the Range. From oh. uh, Queens and Desperate Men. That sounds very exciting if you wanted to set that. And he's um, ostensibly singing it to his, his young child in a oh, way right. that would comfort comfort no one. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> that would oh, ease dear. no one to sleep. Any, no, any no. Any quiet children by. He has a very, he has a pretty wide vocal range. It is very interesting. It was interesting in this movie to see how, to see that um, that range that I was talking about earlier, that where he come, he goes into this kind of tenor, squirrely, almost boyish sound mm-hmm. when he's lying, but like trying to lie in a like, oh, but everything's fine. You know, like that kind of way. Um, that was not a Patrick, Patrick impression. Um, it was a general squirrely impression. Mm-hmm. But there's also that like, that very rumbly, like it's, all, what's interesting about it, especially from my perspective, is it is vocal fry. Something that uh-huh. women get penalized mm. for all the time, especially on radio. I wonder. Absolutely. Yeah, heard heard that. But it's actually much more common in men. It is. It, it, yes. When you hear it, you think of it just it's a classic masculine voice. Well, um, part of it. Okay, so and the reason why this happens, and it happens. It, I mean, it, it happens in, in different voices for different reasons. Sometimes it's a breath control issue, like there's not enough air going into the cord so that they fully close and phonate. Um, and sometimes it's just about hanging out in that lower, like 10% of your vocal range. Like if I lower my voice and I lower my voice and I lower my voice and I lower my, now I'm in vocal fry land. Mm-hmm. But I can also do like Kardashian style vocal fry. And that's mm-hmm. like, that's the one that, um, that like girls get penalized for. But they also get penalized for this kind of vocal fry, which happens. I'm going on a rant here. This is my soapbox, you guys. This is good. This is good. This is what we want. <laughs> so 
Um, we started Vital Voice Training, my company, during what I like to call the great moral panic over vocal fry of 2014. I remember this it. This was, yeah. So there were a lot of articles that were coming out about how annoying and unserious women's voices were. And the problem here, I mean, the whole conversation was so reductive and so sexist. But what's ironic about vocal fry in women is that it is often a function of hanging out below their natural pitch neighborhood so that they don't sound girly, which they are also penalized for having feminine sounding voices. So you start to lower to match the men around you and suddenly you can't fully phonate your vocal cords because Mm -hmm. they're not in position to fully close anymore. I've lost all my resonance, it's gone. It's just a shitty double bind for women that you can't have a feminine sounding voice because that's unserious, but you try to lower it and then you get vocal fry, which is also unserious. So what kind of voice makes people take you seriously? That's right. That's But it's challenge. also a question of which people, right? Because when we get uh, emails, texts, whatever, about somebody on the air having vocal fry, it is always older men older white men <laughs> it's uh, always older men yeah. about younger women of course it's they're the only ones who are raising this at all mm-hmm. and it's it's uh so in the book you know you know i say if you don't like it then there are steps you can take to correct it but if it's gonna not sound like you anymore mm-hmm. <laughs> fry away <laughs> do an well, air fryer deep fry. it's also i mean it's it's it is a you know, especially like the, you know, that Kardashian kind of nasal, higher pitched vocal fry. In a world, yeah. It is a vocal mass. Yeah, she called it sexy baby voice. Like mm-hmm. Belle called it sexy baby voice. Mm-hmm. Like sexy baby voice is a vocal mask. I, when I talk like this, like, you know, immediately who I am. Like you <laughs> have, I, I'm part of a tribe. Like, and this is what we do to our voices in general. We are adapting to respond to the environments that we're in. We're adapting to match and mimic the people around us so that we get social approval. And so this is, I'm going to swing this around, I promise. This is part of like what's really fun about an actor who has both a very distinctive voice, but also a fairly versatile voice like Patty, mm-hmm. who gives you these different choices to establish different characters, but still always sounds like himself. It's fun. Like, it's yeah, really, yeah. it's fun. Yeah, even in the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh, when he's playing the Scarecrow, and he's just doing basically <laughs> like an er Christian Bale. <laughs> Batman, it's, just like, it's, it's, it's It still sounds like him, yeah. no matter what yeah. he does. Mm-hmm. And it, I don't know if that's just, uh, it's not inflection, it's... It's phrasing in a lot of ways. It's, yeah, it's how... you're right. It's mm-hmm. rhythm. Mm-hmm. It's the it's the song. It's the mm-hmm. the, the, the prosody. Prosody is your prosody. Uh, vocal terminology of the day. I have always wondered if they need vocal therapy after the Batman movies. Yeah, because nobody yeah. can s- sustain that shit for that long and not the Robert Pattinson. I I actually like his vocal approach. The bale growl when he's in costume was one of the less successful aspects of those movies, and I just never really had any particular thoughts about since Adam West. You know, when the way <laughs> any of the other Batman spoke. Uh, I mean, Will Arnett's Lego Batman voice is very funny, but he's kind of parodying the bale one. Darkness, <laughs> no parrots, no light. <laughs> But uh, I really like the the Pattinson whisper. He is serving you uh, ASMR Batman. He is serving yeah. shoegaze, um, like a romance Batman. So yeah, I like that. I like that yeah. too. Yeah. 
And then finally, the uh, uh, the mascara makes sense. You know what I mean? <laughs> it's like, yes. Yeah, no, I want I want to know like where he does does Sephora deliver to his house? Does he go to Sephora <laughs> for the makeup? It would be awesome. <laughs> I think they, they cleared this up in the Nolan trilogy where, I mean, he does order from Sephora, but he orders them by, you know, ship container. Because oh, sure. if he just ordered individual quantities of, of eyeliner, everyone would know he was Batman. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Or do we have a Patty? Uh, do, have you chosen a Patty clip to, to play? Wait. So so is there a, a way as a co-host that you can play an audio file that we would I all hear? I totally can. How do you do that? How do you do that? Okay. Uh, I just share computer sound. So if you go to share screen and you you can learn you can learn Chris. Yep. Here's a very important um, McGee sound that uh, unfortunately I didn't have time to send to Casey, but we will all can react to it now in in real time. What's your problem, partner? We go with well, and the worst thing that could happen we just wear a little tread off those uh, new tires. I'm talking about welding. Man has left most of his groceries at the market, pal. Maybe. Maybe we'll find out after tonight. The Weldon file, per your request, came right after weirdos in the file. Beautiful. Okay. <laughs> Miami Vice. That's Miami Vice. Oh, Don, sorry. Sorry. I heard the Don yeah. Johnson. I heard the... Uh, Wait, because I was like, Michael? that was not Patty McGee, was it? That's no. really not. No, it wasn't. But I promise this one will be Patty McGee. Let's take a ride with Weldon. Oh, sorry. Okay. Nope. Still, still wrong. It's going uh, really well. No, 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 no. I, now I've got it. Now I've got it. Well, what do you think? Do we play follow the wacko with this guy Weldon or what? <laughs> I'm sorry. This is this must be very triggering for you to to hear, Glenn. I'm I'm sure I can find the the one that I meant to. Uh, <laughs> this this is probably it. You extended bit. That what? But don't lie to your partner, man. I'm talking about weird dreams about Weldon. <laughs> Yeah. Mine were in color. <laughs> I mean, it's weird. It's like a, a regular cuckoo's nest. Uh, primo. Primo choice. What a, what a long yeah, bit, the, but it was a long <laughs> one. <laughs> yes. But, uh, uh, the, the, uh, the great season two Miami Vice episode, Out There With The Buses Don't Run, mm-hmm. <laughs> features Bruce McGill oh, hey. <laughs> as a, a deeply insane ex-Miami Vice cop named Weldon. Okay. <laughs> cool, cool. <laughs> Is it his first name or last name? It's well, it's his last name because it's a file. It's his last name. It, no, it's a file. This bit would be five minutes longer if uh, they didn't occasionally use his first name as well, which is Hank. Oh, okay. All right. All right. Let's do the Patty McGee. <laughs> <laughs> let's get there. We're losing daylight, people. Uh huh. Uh huh. What you mean is? Let's take a ride with Weldon. <laughs> Uh, Casey, Casey is staying you, uh, late. I <laughs> know. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, there was some really interesting accent work on that. Philip Michael Thomas uh, was uh, was also a singer. <laughs> In addition to being, uh, you know, co-star of uh, the greatest cop show ever, I mean, and uh, it was the eighties, and he released an album. I don't know if you'd call him a singer, but <laughs> <laughs> I think he was more highly regarded as a singer than Don Johnson was. But um, that's true. I don't know. I don't know. All right, so here we're, we're going to take a walk through Patty McGee's storied career with voice expert Casey Aaron Clark. She's going to offer her thoughts mm-hmm. on what he's doing. Boy, oh boy. Pick three. I I find what I sent to you. Cause I'm, I'm, Just pick it. Pick it. I'm going to listen. I'm going I'm to I'm improv. Good. Okay. 
<laughs> all right. So this is uh, so Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. This is uh, like two years after All Night Long. And um, he's. Oh, and I really of... liked this episode with Margaret Willison, whose voice I very much enjoy. Yeah, she's great. All right. Here's uh, Patty McGee in as uh, the Scarecrow of Romney Marsh. Why do you go on taking these chances, Vicar? You're not getting rich on it. And since they don't know, the parish don't thank That's you. That's that. Well, they can live and clothe themselves and their children and pay the taxes in a countryside bled white by the king's parliament, which represents them and which buys and sells votes as if they were dealing in cattle. Now you can't change the way of the world, vicar. No. Unjust laws can be altered as well as made by men. There's a new spirit in the world, Nips. Taxed out of existence, robbed of their independence by the king's government, the people must fight back how they can. Well, men can't beat armies, sir. Ideas can. Faith. All right. So that, that was actually, uh, he was in his Dr. Sin guys there. Yeah. His, uh, I, I his have, civilian alter ego. I've heard that one from that episode. It's, it's I, I would refer to it as fruity. Uh, <laughs> it's a fruity vintage. Uh, there's a lot of sing-song quality to it, so... There is a thing that I refer to as YouTube voice. Okay. So my my husband loves watching YouTube videos. Uh, he goes down rabbit holes of different different things, and sometimes it's law stuff, sometimes it's tech stuff. Um, there's a voice that inexpert voice users put on to sound like experts. Hmm. That sounds. It reminds me a little bit of like book report voice. From elementary school, like, I'm saying a thing that is very important, and you should listen to the thing that I say because I'm using this utterly unconnected to text sing-song quality that makes it sound like I know what I'm talking about. Like, it's not... Paraguay is a land of contrasts. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, so... Patty's is connected to text, which is what makes it work. Mm-hmm. But there's that same sing-song quality that gives it that like. I don't. It's very interesting to me. It is yes. I will call that fruity. Fruity. I agree with that completely. There is a definite posh, um, plummy vowels in that. Oh he, yeah. He is trying to tell you, I come from money. I my people oh, yeah. have been here for a very long time, mm-hmm. and there is a disdain in the. In the in the nasality, I think there's a kind of this kind of a dismissiveness. I'm going to explain those to you, and you will understand as soon as I'm done explaining it to you. But you have no way of knowing until I have explained it to you. Like well, and that. What, what's interesting to me, I was actually trying to think: is it like is it denasal or is it nasal? Yeah, and it's actually weirdly like somehow this both at the same time, mm-hmm. and that reminds me of Britney Spears' voice. Okay. <laughs> It's okay. So what it is, I think it's like a lowered soft palette with a nasality. It's like the, oops, I did it again. Like it's somehow nasal and denasal at the same time. Oh, um, I've been waiting for Patrick McGowan and Britney Spears to share the same <laughs> conceptual space. They do in my mind, but that's that's awesome. That is wonderful. All right. So a few years after that, 1967, The Prisoner is happening. Um, this is from... The, uh, I think, 10th episode, uh, Hammer into Anvil. Yes, good morning. Good morning, sir. Can I help you? Yes, I'd like to insert a, a private advert in the personal column of the next issue, please. Certainly, sir. What is it? I have it written down. 
sort of personal joke between myself and uh, a certain friend. He wants to place a personal ad in the next issue. <laughs> well, and that's where we really hear that's that's a lot of vocal fry. So that's he's gross. out of the sing-song quality mm-hmm. and like sitting in that like that. I'd like to place uh in the advertisement. <laughs> like it just kind of like drops in there and just sits there. And there's very so there's there's like a languid quality to it, but there's still those vowels that or that those consonants that keep it from being too languid. Like it's yeah. Yeah, even in uh, Scarecrow Romanouts, he w- he would say things like "just laws." He he wants you to hear the the terminal T in "just." Oh, with that aspirated, <clears throat> that little aspirated T at the end. Yep. Mm-hmm. And here, uh, you know, normally, as we said, like when he is deceiving somebody, his he goes up and he gets much more animated. Here, he's going way lower. Oh because yeah. Because he's trying to, I think, try to seem casual. He's trying to. Yeah. Seem like, oh this yeah. This is not. This is not. Oh yes, and this is just a person. So he's not, it's like the the lecturing voice, and then this is the like, oh, I'm cool, but I'm also very intelligent at the same time. <laughs> yeah, he's <laughs> all about that lecturing voice. That's that's yeah. his thing. That's his, that's his vibe. Mansplaining <laughs> the guy. Um... All right, so that, that's uh, that's him just talking to someone in in the village who he doesn't have any any particular relationship with. There's no power dynamic there. Let's let's hear how it sounds when he's actually facing off against one of his enemies, one of his his number twos. This is from uh, one of the very best episodes, Dance of the Dead. You're waiting for someone, Mister Tuxedo, or expecting someone, Mister Peter Pan. So it seems. With his shadow. You're being hostile again. What were you looking at? A light. A star. A boat. An insect. A plane. A flying fish. Somebody who belongs to my world. This is your world. I am your world. If you insist on living a dream, you may be taken for mad. I like my dream. Then you are mad. Now go on up to the town hall. May I? You may end tonight. It's carnival. <laughs> it's carnival. <laughs> carnival. Yeah, so that's that's the great Mary Morris as, uh, as number two mm-hmm. in, in that episode. So, okay, early in that clip, that was not that other, that male voice, was that also Patty? It totally was. Oh, see, this is where we are really seeing his tenor range come uh-huh. out. Hmm. I would be very interested to hear him actually try to sing because I suspect that he's <laughs> more of a baritoner than a bass because he's got that because like when he's in his high range it's actually very warm and very round and very easy there's something like when he goes down into the low the low deep so that's when we get that vocal fry sound which tells me that it's actually too low for him mm-hmm. so it's interesting to hear him in that kind of high clear tenor sound at the beginning of that clip and then sink back down into this is my man voice like it's just it's mm-hmm. very interesting well when he's performing as he is when mr peter pan up here or yep. when later in that episode he's like i wish to call a witness a character witness he's way up here <laughs> yeah but you hear it in that clip when he finally says someone from my world he's the mask is gone the oh, chal- yeah. he's not challenging anybody that's him that's about as yeah. close it's probably one of the only times we hear who number six is and he's confiding in her mm. in a way that he don't, will not confide in anybody else. He's like, I like my dream. Like there is nothing, there is no attachments onto that. There's no like flourish. It's just him talking like a human being, which is not what he's known for. <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, 
that... And that's one of my favorite exchanges because you see him turn it off like that. Like, Mr. Peter Pan and his shadow. Very, very out there, very performative. Yeah. Someone from my world. Like, mm. oh, oh, the pain, the pain. Oh, it's so great. <laughs> well, this is, and again, when I looked at his, <laughs> when I looked at his Wikipedia page, um, <laughs> wasn't it like he was a stage manager, right? Who got pulled on stage and Orson Welles saw him and was like, that guy really is talented. And that's yeah. how his career started. So, cause I was, when I first heard him, like without any prior knowledge of his thing, I was like, that is a trained voice. Mm, yeah. That is trained elocution. But I wonder if he learned it from mimicking. Like, do we know if he ever had any mm. formal acting training, or was Not he just a natural? I did at one point. I knew that thing. I had. I had his biomarkers. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That would be interesting because, because yeah, I mean, to your point, like he sounds very. It's always. It's all very produced. It's mm-hmm. all very methodical and very trained. I'm trying to sound very trained. Yeah, um, that's exactly it, Casey. Yeah. Like he, is, he is indicating. Yes. <laughs> oh, say. yeah. He is, he is doing classically trained John Gielgud, you know, tomorrow and tomorrow and tomorrow. Like yes. Up here, doing that, uh, which is not naturalistic in any shape or form. But that's not the point. He's not trying to be a human being, except in, Mm-mm. I like my dream. There he's trying to be like a human yeah. being. Otherwise, he is, tr- he is projecting. He's a man who is trapped, and he's acting out. <laughs> well, and acting clearly out. made a career out of playing those kinds of characters. Characters mm-hmm. who have a, just a very heightened quality to them. Are there any other clips of him being more naturalistic, or is that... I wonder if maybe he was attempting that in uh, his first Columbo, Dawn's Early Light, where he played an, an American military man who's the uh, commandant of this military academy. But that was a very nasal performance. Like, that was, that was yeah, also wasn't a mask. It? That was also, like, yeah. him... <laughs> right. No, and, and I mean, he did spend his, his... I think the whole of his 20s doing entirely stage mm-hmm. work. Yeah. And supposedly one of the things that Orson Welles said was that he would have been a a major actor if television hadn't ruined him. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We get into the period of this movie that we talked about tonight all night long, and that's that's concurrent with with Danger Man and TV stardom finding him in his early 30s. So I wish I had the clips handy from his his Columbo run in the 70s, but I'm going to play one from uh, Silver Streak, where he is our villain. This is uh, 1976, so this is almost 10 years after The Prisoner now. Hello, Roger. Um, this is my friend George Caldwell, Roger Deverell. How do you do? George has just been telling me how he'd been thrown off the train. Oh, you're the one. I'm so pleased to see you. Are you all right? Yes, I'm fine. Oh, that's good news. As soon as I was told, I contacted the police from Albuquerque and told them to spare no expense to make sure you were safe. Reese, he's like a child, got off the train and tried to find you, say he was sorry. How did you get back on? Who is Reese? He's the one that threw you off. Well, you, you must remember him, a large man with not very attractive dental work. I do remember, but what has he got to do with <laughs> He sticks out like a sore thumb. They're both so naturalistic, and he is giving <laughs> you stage actor. <laughs> yeah. True. It's just, it's those, it's those stage consonants that on film feel a little much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, then it's appropriate that he kind of found himself in the in the villain box because I, I know you got to go. So the, the last clip we'll, we'll listen to fully in, in his uh, glory as, as a villain from Braveheart. 
which whatever its merits is probably his most recognizable late role uh, from 1995 Best Picture winner, big hit. And he is our, our villain, Edward the Longshanks, the evil king of England, trying to figure out how to solve its Scots problem. Scotland. <laughs> My friend. The French. No profit to anyone with strength. But how will they believe our strength when we cannot rule the whole of our own island? Here comes my favorite part. Where is my son? Pardon me, Lord. Not that one. He asked me to come in instead. I sent for him, and he sends you. Shall I leave, my lord? If he wants his queen to rule when I am gone, then by all means stay and learn how. Please. Please. <laughs> Nobles. Nobles are the key to the door of Scotland. Grant our nobles lands in the north, give their nobles estates here in England, and make them too greedy to oppose us. But, sir, our nobles will be reluctant to uproot. New lands mean new taxes, and they're already taxed for the war in France. Are they? <laughs> Are they? Okay, here we go. I should have started it here. The man knows how to hold a silence. <laughs> yep. <laughs> The trouble with Scotland is that it's full of Scots. <laughs> Perhaps the time has come to reinstitute an old custom. Grant them prima nocte. First night, when any common girl inhabiting their lands is married, our nobles shall have sexual rights to her. On the night of the wedding. Rights. <laughs> Rights. If we can't get them out, we'll breed them out. That should fetch just the kind of lords we want to Scotland. Taxes or no taxes, eh? The most excellent idea, sire. Is it? <laughs> He's a tenor. Patrick yeah, McGowan yeah. is a tenor. Yeah. I, I'm I'm putting that stake in the ground. He is a natural tenor who lowered his voice to sound more manly. That is his actual range. And a champion of sexual rights. Uh, oh. For some people, yeah. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, yeah it's, it's the use of silence for me. It's the, the claiming of the conversational space. The, the, the air in between. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, it's such a power move. I teach my clients this. It's such a power move to take your time. <laughs> Most people rush. I mean, it's, it's, mm -hmm. it's a power move to take your time. It's sexy. I love it. That speech is a journey. It goes <laughs> everywhere. It goes from to like it is. He is giving you everything you talked about, Casey. He is giving you that kind of piping, you know, tenor. Yep. <laughs> it's like, uh, Danny boy, like that whole yes. uh, way up here. And he's also giving you this incredibly gravelly vocal fry. 
And it's so funny when like another actor comes in and just delivers a line, like an actor delivers a line, and because yep. it's so contrasted to like, <laughs> it's, it's it's such a it's he is having so much fun. See now because of this, Chris, I want to go back and upgrade my. Braveheart grading because I think I gave it like a fucking one or two because I hate that yeah, movie. Yeah, you did. I fucking hate that movie. <laughs> fucking yeah, hate it. Yeah. Just for hate... that scene, it gets more. Just for that scene, just for that speech, just for okay. that, just that, the, the playfulness and the. You know what he... I want? <laughs> there's a little more. Ah, <laughs> uh, just there's a really great rolled R in this one. And I'll speed this up. We're all waiting for it. Ambient castle sounds. Yeah. Is that why you clipped it this far ahead? <laughs> yep. The actual talking? Yep. Scottish rebels have routed, routed. one of my garrisons <laughs> and murdered the noble lord. I heard. This Wallace is a brigand, nothing more. And how would you deal with this brigand? Like any common thief, have the local magistrate arrest him and punish him. Magistrate. Local. <laughs> Leave us. Yeah, he, he wants to beat his son in private. So, ah, yes. Uh, he's, like he's you do. <laughs> Foley artist has fun. already killed the magistrate and taken control of the town. Stand up. Stand up. In the morning, I depart for France to press our rights there. And I leave you here to quell this little rebellion. Understood? Is it? <laughs> okay. Um, do, do you notice that he doesn't say France? I depart to France because he's not performing for anybody, right? There's oh, nobody yeah. around. He's just he's just this is a very talking good to my point. son, who oh. I don't care about. So it's yep. I depart for France. I, I will not waste a rolled R on him. <laughs> yeah. I was thinking during that first clip and in this clip too. You know those YouTube videos where somebody will, um, a pianist will improvise musical underscoring for somebody with a really sing-song voice? Uh-uh. I want someone to do that for that first <laughs> Patty clip because it is, as you said, Glenn, so musical in right. how he uses. Yeah. I mean, we're talking, we're, we're, he's all over the place. Mm-hmm. Scales and arpeggios. And, totally it's great. a shame we don't we don't know anyone who has those kind of skills, Casey. <laughs> I could try to make that happen. Oh my god! I could try to make <laughs> that happen. Don't promise. Don't break our hearts. <laughs> don't promise. Don't. don't I will apply for a grant to to fund <laughs> this endeavor. Oh, guys, this was so much fun. Oh my god, thank you, Casey. You brought so much. You brought so much to this show. Oh, yes. Well, I am a fan of both of you, so this was great. I love Pop Culture Happy Hour. I love, you you know, this is just, this is a blast. So thank you very much. What what do you want to plug before you go? God, what do I want? I mean, I guess my business. Hi, if anybody wants to learn how to feel more confident when you're talking, hit me up, Mm -hmm. vitalvoicetraining.com. We we also have small goals of changing how communication culture works in the workplace. So (laughs) we've been doing a lot of uh, corporate gigs. I'm off to California next week for a uh, three-day intensive with a small tech company whose name rhymes with schmoogle. Okay, uh, heard of them. So, yeah, um, I'm, super, awesome. I'm super excited. So yeah, we, we love helping people feel more confident. 
uh, Casey, does your does your work intersect at all with media training? Is that like uh, that kind of? Yeah, I mean, we we definitely work with people on messaging and mm-hmm. and talking points and things like that. How mm-hmm. not to ramble? Although I did a lot of <laughs> rambling today. Please this, do not take is, that as a the show. The show. Is the show for it. This is when in Rome, Casey. Yeah. Right. Totally. Yeah, so, but, you know, helping people feel confident on video, of course, and, and anywhere you have to speak, we'll give you, we bring the tools of actors to muggles, and it is <laughs> yes. delightful to us, so yes. Four years ago, Glenn and I were invited to give a talk about 2001 A Space Odyssey at the National Air and Space Museum, uh, coinciding with the 50th anniversary of, of that film, there was a whole whole night of programming around it, and I consulted Casey, I booked a session. You did! Nice. Four to years get ready ago? To, Good God. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Time is weird. Time is weird. That's the session where you uh, entered in the ape mask, right? Because of 2001? Yeah. So everything was going great because, I, you know, I thought it would be, knowing the, you know, the famous first section of uh, 2001, I thought it would be funny if I came in with an ape mask and then I had a bone that I would throw up in the air, except the closest <laughs> thing I could find to a bone was a, like a doggy chew toy from Petco that just didn't, it didn't look bone-like enough oh, for it to be no. funny. And my biggest fear was that since I, I could not really see through the eye holes of this rubber ape mask at all, that I would trip on the stairs leading up to the stage there at the the front of the Lockheed Martin IMAX theater at the Air and Space Museum, which I like, it's very easy to trip on those stairs, even when your vision is unobstructed. And I got up there without tripping or anything. I was like, okay, mission accomplished. I'm, I'm in the clear now. And then I couldn't figure out which button to hit on the laptop to turn off the Strauss. Oh, no. So the <laughs> bah, 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 just kept playing like way past the point I, at which yeah. it was funny. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> well, but, and I think... Go ahead. They had a visual of a man in an ape mask kind of pouncing, <laughs> punching a keyboard. So, I mean, you know. Yes. Thematic. Theme. It works. On theme. Yes. On theme. It's good. Right. Yeah. Uh, and Errol Morris used it as a, as a famous Apple commercial <laughs> after that. It was, uh, well, and I think that, uh, that, that, you know, Chris became a friend mostly initially because he convinced me to see one of the best plays I've ever seen at a college theater festival. So well done for recommending uh, uh, Mr. Burns' Burns, post-electric play. play. I was so tired that night after coaching all day and he was like, nope, you have to go see it. I was like, fine, okay, whatever. And then I loved it. Is Anne Washburn? I got to, no, I can't say it. I hope it's, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Such a good Uh, play. Incredible. So check right. out Casey, uh, vitalvoicetraining.com, caseyaaronclark.com. Thank you so much, Casey. Thank you. Thanks, fellas. This was a blast. What are we doing next? Is it the long-awaited baby secret of the Lost Legend oh episode? Um, I, suppose it, I suppose it must needs be, but oofta. Casey, how do you feel about, you know, not high-quality Stan Winston Jurassic Park animatronic <laughs> dinosaurs, but like substantially lower-grade animatronic dinosaurs no one has ever asked me that question no i can, um, I can see that you know we, we've known each other a little while now, <laughs> so, I, so i feel like it's it's okay you know yeah. if somebody's working hard enough to make something animatronic i'm going to give them a little credit i guess but okay. I, i'll grade on a curve mm-hmm. uh yeah sean young is in it too yeah <laughs> famously one of one of glenn's uh like extremely narrow um exceptions uh, there's a window. <laughs> there's a, uh, there's okay, a, so is, it's a temporal a, window? It's a temporal Sean Young window, yeah. Okay, so so at some point in between Blade Runner and 82 and Baby, and I want to say 86, did the window close? You know what? Did the I think it's narrow? just Blade did Runner. The... <laughs> okay. I think it's a very, I think it's a very narrow window. 
which okay. is wearing like uh, Andrew Sisters mm-hmm. drag, <laughs> uh-huh. oh. <laughs> except it's leather. Uh-huh. So all right, like you do. Well, yeah, yeah. I'm a simple man with simple needs. Do you like our owl, mm-hmm. Glenn? That's that's the moment. <laughs> <laughs> that's the moment. All right, it sounds like we're doing doing baby in uh, in you know. In the coming weeks, I don't even want. Cause again, I feel like we're still on jazz time here, so I don't. I don't want to commit to uh, to uh, you know uh, a strict kind of kind of four four release schedule. We'll, we'll see. All right. Well, till then, everyone, be seeing you. Be seeing you. Your turn. Your turn, right. Casey. Oh, you can say it. I'll be seeing you. Uh-huh. Uh, that was excellent. <laughs> Delia, oh Delia. Deal you all my life If I hadn't a shot for Delia I'd have had her for my wife Delia's gone One more round Delia's gone I went up to Memphis And I met Delia there A Degree Absolute was conceived by Glenn Weldon and is produced by me Chris Klemick. I wrote our silly little theme song with my dear friend and now your dear friend Casey Aaron Clark on vocals and keyboards and her brother Jonathan Clark on guitar and percussion with Marcus Newstead on bass. Once again, check out Casey at vitalvoicetraining.com and or caseyaaronclark.com. Also check out the Vital Voice podcast, Voice Is, for more insight and wisdom of the sort you heard from Casey on this episode and less silliness. Write the Citizens Advice Bureau at a degree absolute at gmail.com. The emails are slowing down. Come on, we want to hear from you. Tweet us at not a number pod. Follow us on Instagram at a degree absolute. Rate, review, subscribe. And if you leave a five star review for us on Apple or Stitcher or whatever podcatcher you use to hear us, along with your craziest prisoner take, we are going to compile those crazy prisoner takes and evaluate them, hold them in judgment on a future episode and you know if you like our show tell a friend or tell an enemy tell an acquaintance i don't think it's so healthy that you need to categorize every relationship in your life that way you can let her run or you can bring her down and do her like deal you got done Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone, Delia's gone, one more round, Delia's gone. It's no degree partial, it's a degree absolute, absolute. to um set set this up do you need to set up wait this, this thing was patty mcgee literally in those clips because i did no not. No, 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 no okay no. good i'm just making sure that i did not have this Chris like just sail doing a bit. directly over my head no i don't i'm just fucking with glenn because okay. when, when i realized i was watching a miami vice where uh <laughs> every other line someone is saying that weldon what a wacko i was like oh, <laughs> oh I, I have to weaponize this evil genius okay <laughs> so. genius okay <laughs> you had him last night too didn't you at what? But don't lie to your partner, man. I'm talking about weird dreams about welding. 
Well, if I had a nickel. All right, I'm getting hungry here. Have a nickel. Okay. All right. All right. I mean, it's weird. It's like a regular cuckoo's nest. 